Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Michael. Hello, everybody. And Jason. Hey, everyone. For the last time of the year, what's up, guys? How you doing? Hey, doing good. How are you? Splendid. I'm so angry. Angry at what? Angry about the the fact that this film exists and the way that it does. <laughs> um, the reason that it, it exists yeah. is, one, is something to get angry about. Yes, I agree. I think it's okay that the film exists. Kind of trust. Very irrationally angry. Yeah. No, it's it's not irrational. <laughs> it's not the movie's fault. <laughs> it's, it's very rational anger. It's righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Today uh, we are wrapping up with a listener episode, and we are talking about the girl next door from 2007. Make sure you get that year down, or you know it's Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, because there's a lot of girl next doors floating around out there. Strangely, not all of them pornographic. Yeah. I mean, one of them is not pornographic, but about pornography. pornography. It's funny, because like, I have friends and stuff that they don't listen to our show, but they'll you be don't. like... You don't. <laughs> you liar. We're the only two you have. <laughs> to just kind of be polite, they'll be like, hey, uh, what are you guys doing on the podcast? I'm like, oh, we're doing The Girl Next Door. Now, not the, like... Not the one you're thinking of. Not the teen raunchy comedy one with Alicia Cuthbert, but the one that's based on the Jack Ketchum novel. And then they're like, huh, I didn't know there was one with Alicia Cuthbert. (laughs) So I think, Michael, you and I are like the only ones that know that movie exists. It's actually good. I remember that movie, yeah. It's actually pretty funny. It's good. But it's funny because this is streaming on Tubi, right? So I go on there to find it, and it has not only this one, the Alicia Cuthbert one, but... Two other films also called The Girl Next Door from different, like there's like a 90s one and like an 80s one. I feel like if you choose the others, you're not going to be as depressed as you would be after watching this one. Depends how bad they are. I mean, the Alicia Cooper one's funny. That's fine. That's fine. I don't know about the others, though. The others could be, you know, horrible. Yeah, I don't know. They both look like thriller, pseudo horror kind of things. Yeah. But except no substitutes. (laughs) No. This is. If it doesn't rip your soul out and stomp on it and then take a giant doo-doo on it, it's not this one. So we're going to get into all of that, but first, keeping it positive, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. Well, unless what we've been watching is shitty, too. <laughs> I brought some killers this time, so yeah? I'm ready. Okay, who wants to go first? I can start. Okay. okay. Um, I will go ahead and talk about Wednesday, because uh, I think I'm the only one of us that watched it. I, I watched the first episode. I haven't had time to get to it yet. I'm dying to. Um... I'm interested to see know what you think of it, Dustin. It's it's not what I thought it was going to be. Mm. It's very much a teen show, right? Um, it basically takes the whole premise uh, or like the formula of the Sabrina. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw like a little bit of the plot stuff about like the Nevermore Academy and stuff. I was like, okay, so this is kind of the Sabrina thing. Yeah, it, it oh, it could be like a Sabrina episode, you mm-hmm. know, kind of a thing um, that builds in the elements of. The Adams family, but not traditional Adams family. So I think that there's a lot of people who didn't like it, but the younger generation really likes it. And you know what? I hate to burst people's bubble, but that's fucking okay. That's fine. Like <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I, I mean, I it, did it doesn't t- mean it's good. No, well, but I it's did, okay if they like it. I did <laughs> tell Jason like I liked shit when I was young. I did tell Jason when I started watching it with my wife, and she loved it. And mm. I was just, I'll be honest, I was just kind of okay on it. Mm. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Um, I honestly didn't particularly care for uh, Jenna Ortega's portrayal of Wednesday. What? I think she. I think like, she's too sociopathic, like too psychopathic. Uh, it's I too felt, far. I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but she played the character very autistic, like very social 
Norm completely oblivious. Um, and mm-hmm. I, and so I don't say autism in like a negative way, but like I never bought Wednesday Adams as sociopathic or, I mean, she's a sociopath because, but she was more, mm-hmm. I didn't think that she was unaware of social norms. Right. She just chose not to abide by she's them. She's just or, who she is. But she would also use social norms to her advantage all the time. I never thought that Wednesday was like mean either. And Jenna Ortega's portrayal comes came across as being mean. And that's probably part of her character arc, I'm sure. That um, she changes and softens or whatever. Yeah. It, but, I mean, she's like fucking just mean, you know? And I, I never thought that was Wednesday. Yeah. I don't... I mean, I, Jenna, I like Jenna Ortega. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that she did... I don't think she was bad as Wednesday. It's just I didn't think she played Wednesday. Hmm. I think she played her own character, which is fine. Look, there's only one Wednesday, Adams. We all know this. <laughs> yeah. It's Christina Ricci. Which so. she's, she's in the show. Yeah. She's in the show. Yeah. And she's great in the show. Um, I will say all the supporting cast is super cool in the show. Um, Gwendolyn Christie is in it. Um, you might know her um, from her on-screen face appearance of Captain Phasma. <laughs> uh, no, she's Brienne of Tarth, and she's also Lucifer in Sandman. Um, but uh, she's great in it. Christina Ricci's in it. Um, I really like Luis Guzman. As- yeah, I wanted to talk about that real quick. That, that, let's go ahead. Online, there was so much backlash about like, oh, that's not Gomez. And it's like, dude, he looks like the freaking comic. He looks just like him. He looks just fucking like him. So I didn't watch the whole thing, but I wanted more of the Adams family. So, I didn't want just Wednesday. Supposedly they're doing that with the second season mm-hmm. because this has been such a huge hit for Netflix. Yeah. Um, I will say if you watch it, just temper your expectations and, and mm-hmm. realize that this show is not the Adams family that you grew up with. It's not the Christina Ricci. Um, and it's not the reruns I grew up with yeah. from the 60s. <laughs> it's So it's not that. It's different. And that's okay. And if you don't like it, that's okay. You know, like, I don't know. There was a lot of people who were trying to review bomb it. And I'm like, just come on. It just might not be a show for you. And that's okay. It doesn't yeah. mean it's bad. Get over it. It's really not that big of a deal. The biggest issues I took with it, honestly, was there was some really questionable CG choices in it that I was like, you've got the fucking budget. Yeah. And you're Tim Burton. So, mm-hmm. like, why are, why, like, why did you... Why so? Some of those monsters are pretty weak. Why did? Why was this the monster you chose? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. why was this the one you signed off on? That's my biggest critique of it, hmm. honestly. But uh, it did. It. I will say this: it gave the Netflix bump to a song. Um, you know, like the way. Oh yeah. yeah. To uh, the Cramps Goo Goo Muck, hmm. which I mean, hey, the Cramps Rock. If anything gets people to the Cramps, I'm like, go for it. You know, super cool. So, um, yeah. I'm not going to say that I loved it. I'm not going to say that I hated it, but I wasn't upset that I watched it. Well, that's a glowing endorsement. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sure is. No, I think it, we just, I chose to talk about it because I was the only one who watched it. But right. I did tell Jason, I was like, hey, I'm watching Wednesday. This show is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I did try it. I watched the first episode and bits and pieces of the rest, but yeah. But, well, I'll, I'll have to finally give it a shot then and see, see where I fall. Yeah. Did you like Sabrina at all? Yeah. I you'd probably I didn't finish it, but yeah, I tuned out in the second uh, season. I didn't finish it either. Yeah, <laughs> that says a lot. Karen Shipka's awesome, though. I like her a lot. Yeah. I was really on board on that first season, and then like season two, I was like, oh, okay, this is still kind of cool. And then like the next one rolled around, and I was just like, mm, yeah. I don't have time for this. I watched three. I watched season three, but they put out that last couple episodes to finish it off, and they didn't get renewed. And I never watched those. <laughs> Oops. Oh well. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll go next. Okay. With my one movie. What? 
Okay, sure. <laughs> um, I watched. Well, I watched a few things. Maybe I should recap quickly some of the things I watched recently. You should. I finally watched Nope. I haven't seen it yet. Was it good? Pretty fucking awesome. No. Yeah, cool. yeah. It's not perfect, but it's damn close. It the visuals alone are amazing. It's um, <laughs> and this is a good thing, but it, it's like a mix between the best of In Night Shyamalan and Spielberg. Yeah, it has that kind of a feel to it, and it has some of the most legit scary scenes I've seen in any movie in a while. Oh, oh yeah, wow. like when Probably. I when I saw it, like I was like, okay, this is like kind of pretty tame. I guess I'm okay with this. And then when they have like the, mm. I don't know how much I want to spoil. Yeah, don't spoil it. There's a part where a thing happens and a lot of people get hurt very badly. <laughs> yes, and you see stuff, something. see stuff, and it's so fucking <laughs> happen, so then... fucking disturbing and haunting that they even depict even part of it. And you don't even see that much. Yeah. Um, but just the screams. And you realize what's happening. You're but also like, oh the God. flashbacks to the sitcom and the mishap yeah, that yeah, happened yeah. during the sitcom. Um, yeah. I mean, it was probably since um, uh, Hereditary. Some of the most chilling stuff I've seen since Hereditary. Oh, obviously. wow. I mean, take that how you will <laughs> because it's extremely subjective. And mm. this is me we're talking about. I don't know. I'm with you. There's not a lot that... Not a lot that shocks me much anymore, but Hereditary, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I'm not saying, nope, is not as good as Hereditary, but it is. It's very good. It's very fun. It has good performances, and I had no idea where the fuck it was going. I love <laughs> I, that. I somehow still don't know what it's about. Yeah, that's uh, good. Well, I'm I'm perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I've avoided it. Like, I've just, I know, like, I've, I've seen a couple little things spoiled, but I still, those tiny little things I've seen, I still don't know what it's about. Yeah, the yeah, less I mean, you know going in, I think the stronger it is. Yeah, even when the trailer played in the theater, in the movie theater, I saw it, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm not paying attention to the trailer. I'm like, closing <laughs> my eyes, looking away. Trailers give way too much away. That's what days. you do when I talk. That's true. I <laughs> um, also watched uh, Hatching. What is that? That is a Finnish movie. Um, okay. It's streaming on... What is it on? What? Yeah, you haven't heard of this one? No, I just was laughing because I just remembered that I kept trolling Piper for like a week. She said something was Swedish, and I was like, are you sure you're not finished with it? Oh, God. And she just stared at me for a long time. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Hatching, is, it's a Finnish movie, and it's about a young girl whose mother is extremely image conscious. She's like one of those social media queens and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and she's just completely domineering and dominating of her children. Um, so the daughter <laughs> finds an egg and she kind of, <sighs> mm, I don't know how to say this, uh, but like all of her negative emotions get put into the egg basically. Okay. You know, and we have like, um, so then it hatches and something comes out and okay. then mayhem ensues. I don't want to say too much more about it, but it has strong brood vibes. It sounded very broodish. <laughs> yeah. So if you've seen the brood, you know what to expect for the most part. Um, hmm. I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a very good movie. I the way you were it. playing so coy with how you were describing that, I really thought you were going a different way. With you were like, <laughs> she puts the egg, and I'm like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. it's not one. Of, no, <laughs> oh no, oh, goodness, goodness, no. What uh, what what service did you watch this on? <laughs> it was on YouPorn. Um, <laughs> oh, what's that logo in the corner? Is, is, that, is that Brazzers? <laughs> well, check out Hatching. I like it. It's it's very well made. And then the last one I'll talk about, I watched Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Oh, yeah. I really wanted to see that. I hadn't got around to I it. I like it. It's fun. It's um, 
sometimes it will annoy you, but it's supposed to. Because mm-hmm. it's about a bunch of obnoxious, rich 20-somethings. Yeah. Who are all just, you know, they only care about themselves. and Don't worry, they die, I'm sure. <laughs> it, it started to kind of lose me toward the end. But then the, the ending just, it's perfect. It's a great ending. It won me over. And the ending itself is just a full star. Uh, I recommend that as well. It bothers me that they didn't just do bodies cubed. <laughs> the people think it was like some sort of a sequel, like Alien Three <laughs> or something. <laughs> That'll be the sequel title. Uh, bodies with the three in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> but I recommend it. Check it out. Cool. Okay, Dustin. How All about right. you? Uh, I got to hit you with a double. So first thing, if you follow me on social media, you I know too. that. I have the Shawscope box set volume two. Yep. I'm excited to get into it. I'm probably going to do the whole like roundup thing like I did last year. A roundhouse thing. Roundhouse, roundup. Yeah. Roundhouse, roundup. Um, so I'm going to work on that next year. So I'm, I've got that set to the side and it stares at me every day when I come home. Uh, but I thought, you know, I started that full core box set from Severin and I was like, I need to finish it. I just like lost track of keeping up with that. Mm-hmm. So I had one more in their little block of Australian films. And, you know, the last one I watched was that uh, Celia, which I really liked. So I thought, surely the final one can't be as good as that, but I'll at least cap that off and get into the next ones. Turns out it was great. Uh, It's called Allison's Birthday from 1981. And this is like... I saw you had watched that on your letterbox. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it, so I went and added it up to my queue. So it starts so weird because it's like this young 16-year-old girl named Allison, and she's having like a spirit board session with her school friends. And then, like, it goes completely bonkers, and one of the kids gets possessed, and this spirit is talking to Allison, and it's like, you're in danger, you can't stay there, uh, you need to leave home, um, especially when your 19th birthday rolls around. If you stay there, you'll you'll die. You have to get out. Mm-hmm. And then, like, everything goes crazy, and a bookshelf crashes down and kills the kid that's possessed. Mm-hmm. And it's like this traumatizing moment, and then you just, like, boom, smash to when Allison is 19, and she's, like, out living on her own. And uh, you learn a bit about her. You learn that, like, her parents died in an accident when she was really little. And she went to stay with her aunt and uncle. And they kind of raised her and were her parents and stuff. Uh, she's got this guy that she's dating that's really sweet named Peter. And they're, like, a nice little couple. They hmm. work at a record store. Peter. And then she just gets this innocent call, like, right before her birthday from her aunt. That's like, oh, you know, your uncle's doing bad. Um, he's going to pass away within, like, the next year. Um, he didn't want me to tell you, but... Uh, uh, we really want to see you one final time before he passes. Um, we're going to throw you a birthday party if you'll just come back home. Mm. And so she has like rocketing in her mind. It's like, yeah, it's, it's my birthday. So that weird thing happened. I don't know. And so, you know, being a good guy, Pete's like, hey, I'll go back with you. Uh, I won't let anything bad happen to you. We can just, we'll just go back for a little while and you can like settle up with your family. It'll be cool. Mm-hmm. So they go and I'm not going to go through the whole plot, but starts to get really weird and really creepy. A little Rosemary's Baby, almost. As they, the, the aunt and the uncle start to like gaslight Allison about things. And they start to try to find excuses to keep Peter away, to isolate her. And there's all these weird, like, there's a family doctor that comes around. And he doesn't really have a practice. And they can't find him in the phone book. And it keeps getting weirder and weirder. And the aunt keeps making her weird, like, herbal teas. Oh, yeah, that's very Rosemary's Baby. Uh-huh. Um, and then it gets full-blown, like... This had to be a movie that um, was an influence on Hereditary because the whole like big twist of it is like her aunt and uncle are like this druidic cult 
and they killed her parents and abducted her when she was a little kid because uh-huh. she was born at the certain time on the certain day. It's a thorn cult. Of this like druidic demon that they worship that like body hops between like they offer up a body and it possesses it and takes it over. And they like abducted her when she was a kid and have groomed her all her life for her 19th birthday so they can do the ritual. Cool. And it, it goes bonkers and totally crazy. Um, super bleak ending, which I won't spoil. You should seek it out and just check it out and get destroyed. Like if uh, you watch The Girl Next Door, same thing. Very nice. bleak, very downer. <laughs> great double right. feature. Yeah, yeah, great double feature. Except this, uh, as far as we know, is not based on true events, right? No, no, no. Um, and I really dig the uh, the Peter character. He's played by um, Lou Brown, which I don't think I had seen him in much else. Lou Brown! I think he's only in like one or two other films, but he's like very endearing. They have, they have a very sweet relationship between the two of them. And once this starts to like ramp up and they're trying to like prep her for the ritual, he really like gives his all to try to save her because they like, they, they frame him like he's like an ex-boyfriend that's abusive and get him arrested and all this stuff, and he like brings in friends to like research everything and find out about this cult and how they're working and what they're doing. Yeah, it's a cool. lot of fun. Nice. Uh, if you love weird, creepy cults and like the Rosemary's Baby vibe, yeah, this is what I never heard of. It like completely went under my radar. Either. It's got a bit of a like TV movie feel to it. I guess the way it's shot. It and sounds stuff, like a TV but, movie too. Uh, no, it's fun. It maybe drags a little in the middle before like when they go back, but then they don't quite have the cult stuff going on yet. But yeah. It's fun. It's worth seeking out. At any point, did Elvis Costello call in and sing Allison? No. No. That would have been cool. Allison, (laughs) no, this cult is killing you. (laughs) So my other one I want to talk about, after the girl next door, I was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there and I was like, I can't just go to bed on this. I have to find something. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) So I was just like doom scrolling Tubi, trying to find something, you know. And I, it occurred to me that Full Moon Entertainment serves their whole slate of content to Tubi to be watched for free with ads. Um, I guess they have like an exclusive time with their own service and then they just like, or whatever. I'm sure there's some scheme of that of how yeah, it works to make yeah. money. Um, so I realized they have the latest Puppet Master film, the standalone film, Dr. Death. And I hadn't seen it and it's only an hour. So I was like, shit, let's do it. <laughs> this will get me good. Uh-huh. Um, and it's surprisingly great. Yeah, really. Uh, I would say it's better than like the last four or five movies they've done. I love that it's just an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I watched it, I was like, oh, this is perfect for Jason. It's just an hour. It gets right into the story. It just doesn't waste any time at all. It starts going. People start dying. Well, maybe it should be like that. Boom, boom, boom. And then it's done in an hour, and you're like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm cool with you. That's like the old Universal films. You're like an hour <laughs> ten. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I'll pop one of those um, anytime. It's shot at their Ohio lot that they have, which again, I think I mentioned that when I talked about Baby Oopsie. It's really just a big-ass house they bought in a suburban street in Ohio that they then like redress constantly and use to film to make movies really cheap. Um, so it's the exact same house, but they've done it up as like a uh, assisted living retirement home kind of place. Mm-hmm. And um, you follow the lead chick. Um, dang, her name's not coming to me, but it's okay. It's okay. Kind of irrelevant in the scheme of the story. But, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, she's, she's going to win an Oscar for her performance here. Don't worry. She's a new hire and, um, one of the residents pass away and they discover the Dr. Death puppet in his like belongings. And then it was like sealed in a box and they let it loose. So then it starts going around and trying to kill all the elderly among the assisted living center. Okay. Um, not a deep plot, not a complicated plot. That's all there is to it. 
Sometimes you don't need a lot. Uh, it's know? very standalone. It's not too steeped in the Puppet Master lore. Now, is this, is this one of the original puppets? So this is one of what's called the Retro Puppets. Okay. They debuted in the seventh film, which was this early, early flashback to the first set of puppets that Toulon made. That then, like, they had, like, some adventures, and then they got, like, scattered or destroyed. Okay. Um, and you've never seen them again since. So right. this is, like, the first time one has come back. And there's a crazy, like, twist ending thing where they connected up with all the lore... It kind of hints that maybe more of the retro puppets are coming back. Uh-oh. So, um, what I loved about this too is that it's set modern day because, like, the Puppet Master franchise has had this bad problem of like they keep sticking in the World War II plot area, right? And their budgets are so cheap now. Like, man, they just <laughs> they just can't do it. It's so hokey and so bad. Yeah. And I didn't realize until I saw this like how much I've missed seeing like the puppets in modern day just like tormenting and terrorizing people mm. and going crazy. Um. I do have one little critique of it that I think is a recent problem with a lot of their stuff. Like these newer films they've been shooting, they do them in like 30 minute chunks. Like that's the first release is they release them in like episode chunks. Hmm. Then they merge it as a film. Then like that streams, then eventually they put it on like home media and other places. And you can kind of tell that it was made to be like episodic because like right about the 30 minute mark, the lead character, she gets knocked out. And she has a nightmare. And her nightmare is like a 30-second supercut of the first 30 minutes of the film. <laughs> and you can tell that's the break where like episode two started. Nice. And it's completely awkward, completely unnecessary. And it really reminds you that like this wasn't filmed straight as like a full-on movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. Baby Oopsie had that same problem. Right. There is another you know, theory to why that could be. is I think you're probably one of the few people who are not watching this movie blitzed out of your mind <laughs> and you might at the 30 minute mark need that little recap of yeah. what you just watched hey, like, man, maybe, how maybe. am i watching what just happened oh um, yeah oh thank you movie all right <laughs> no i gotta be completely sober because i'm a puppet master super fan so i gotta get every nugget of lore but i, I feel like they even know their audience they're like yeah people are gonna be blazed when they're watching this oh, like, like what is it bong of the dead or something like well, that evil bong. evil bong there's like 10 of those now or something they so. know they yeah. know what they're doing so you know give them a little Maybe quick so. little reminder at the 30 minute um <laughs> but yeah puppet master dr death pleasantly surprised I'll you're not that. tripping this is really a movie <laughs> oh thank god <laughs> oh man cool very cool is that all is that it that's it okay we're good I'm glad that cleansed your palate of the movie we're about to talk about. It helped me. Helped me get to this point. Wonderful. All right. So today we are talking about The Girl Next Door from 2007. Also, maybe better just known as Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. This was a listener-suggested episode. Yes. And I actually wanted to tell the kind of the story of how this came about because it was sort of fun. It relates back to our extreme horror block. So, um, you know, you troll these like Facebook discussion groups about horror films and usually it's a lot of crap. Right. Mm-hmm. We know that. We've talked about that before. Uh, every now and again, there's a cool discussion. And so I stumbled across a discussion that was talking about like um, a Serbian film and contrasting that with the sadness. Okay. And the poster suggested that the sadness was like much worse, much harder to watch. Mm. And you know, you and I, Jason, we we went through the sadness. We went through both these films. Sure did. And we weren't quite so impressed with the sadness as everyone else has been, which is fine. Right. But, yeah. I appreciate um, the gore, but so I kind of engaged in this conversation, mostly because I was wondering, like, what's where are you coming from on this? Right. Mm-hmm. I want to understand. 
And um, the poster, like her final answer of kind of like where she was coming from, I thought it was compelling and interesting. Uh, her whole stance was basically um, that like with a Serbian film, you know, it, it's something that could happen. It probably does happen out there somewhere in the world. Weird, fucked up, like rich people with all the time in the world to do heinous shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, you can like attach that to a thing, to a source that you can like understand and know and you get how it works, even if it is like terrible. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the sadness and the um, that was it the Alvin virus is that what it was fucking yeah, called yeah. yeah with the Alvin virus like ultimately yeah there's this virus maybe there's a cure you don't know but there's no there's no answer there and there's no like logic to it either of like why does it infect people and what it does is like this they can remain like kind of conscious of what they're doing but they just can't control themselves mm-hmm. in a way that's like this insurmountable more disturbing more scary idea when you just like stack them up side by side. Okay, sure. And I thought that was interesting. It didn't change my opinion on the sadness, but yeah. it's, it's cool. It's, it's cool a, to have another perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, so shout out to the person that brought that up. Her name was Elena. In the con, in the whole like flux of talking about it, I mentioned my podcast and I was like, hey, you know what? Give me some movies to take back. There you go. To talk about. And the girl next door was one of them. So thank you, Elena, for this. Good, good pick, Elaine. I, good I've, pick. I've seen this movie before. I like this movie. Spoiler alert. We've all it's seen this movie. one, right, before in the past. Uh, I owned it and forgot to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, glad we could shore that up for you. <laughs> I actually had already <laughs> sold it. And had, thankfully, Tubi had it. Because so, I was like, shit, I think I sold this. <laughs> um, so I guess before we get too deeply in, I want to talk about the genre. Officially, this is listed as crime slash drama slash horror. I think it's extreme horror. Where do you guys sit on that? I would agree. Um, not because it's explicit. Um, it certainly isn't. I mean, you don't want to watch this with your kids. That's for sure. No, I did. But it's it's not nearly. Well, <laughs> if you're like one, you could probably get away with it. Um, but it's not exploitive. It's not explicit just for explicit sake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the subject matter that makes it so extreme. Right. And the fact that it's based on a true story. and Which, the true story is worse than right the movie. But The movie's uh, pretty fucking terrible. We'll get into that. I'll agree. I think it's extreme horror. But I think it's... I think a lot of people would probably shit on that and say that it's not extreme horror because... You, you don't need gore <laughs> to be extreme. I think for a set of people, though, that is extreme horror. Like, it's stuff that's just there to shock only. It's more important when it is emotional when it makes you mm. feel something and that's what gets me harder i think poor choice of words oh, yeah. <laughs> that's staying in but yeah that's but you know in. um like anything that's like emotionally devastating that is so much worse to me than just like showing someone mangled and mutilated right right yeah because you know those are just effects but mm. i mean this shit really happens what they show in this movie yeah i'm trying to think of other films that kind of fall in the same vein as Girl Next Door that I would consider extreme, I'd, I'd probably have to hit you with those later for you to put like on on socials or something like that. Okay. So I'm trying to think of something that you might equate this to because it really does kind of stand out on its own as its own type of film. I think you probably get similar feelings with some true crime films. Yeah. But I don't think that a lot... Of, um, so like an interesting thing that's happened is that a lot of people are upset over the Dahmer show on that hit Netflix because it really goes into the humanity mm-hmm. of what Dahmer did. And I think it's really easy for a lot of true crime 
like either podcast listeners or true crime enthusiasts to disconnect yourself from the event. Mm-hmm. You know, like you get more wrapped up in the procedural part of it mm-hmm. and the asking the questions of, well, did they catch him? How did they find them? How did they do it? Um, and you forget the event, the, the, the people that were victimized. Right. And I think the Dahmer show, I haven't watched it, but the complaint is um, that people are like, you shouldn't like this because <laughs> these are, it's really now showing the victims and what actually happened to them and what Dahmer did. And I think that's what Girl Next Door does mm-hmm. is it reminds you of the humanity of the victimization of what happens. Right. And it doesn't shy away from what happens. It doesn't necessarily show you. Right. But it doesn't shy away from letting you know exactly what's happening. It goes exactly as far enough as it needs to, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think any farther would have been wrong. Yeah. Um, But I thankfully it it knows where it needs to stop. Right. And it trusts the actors' performances and stuff like that to really sell it. Uh, There is another adaptation of this whole like the original true crime case. That is an American crime from 2007. Same year. Interestingly, it was supposed to come out in 2007, and that's like kind of the date attached to it. It had distribution problems, got denied a theatrical release, and then got dumped onto Showtime in 2008. Um, have you seen it? I have. I have to. It's more true to the actual case and the events. Yeah, it's actually based on the real names um, and everything. It's kind of one of those like docu-true crime things almost, where they mm-hmm. just like totally adapt it like beat for beat as best they can. Yeah. This one takes liberties, but I think it does it in a way to... Tell interesting things. I think it's a better movie than American Crime. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, I guess should we get into the story? Let's do it, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I can hit you guys with a synopsis. In a quiet suburban town in the summer of 1958, two recently orphaned sisters, Meg and disabled Susan, are placed in the care of their mentally unstable Aunt Ruth. But Ruth's depraved sense of discipline leads to unspeakable acts of abuse and torture that involve her young sons the neighborhood children, and one 12-year-old boy, David, whose life will be changed forever. Now, I don't really like that synopsis. But well, it's... <laughs> it's not wrong. It's not just wrong. also not right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very sanitized synopsis. But, I mean, it's basically what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically. Um, technically, you could say it's a movie and there's people and they do things. Yes. I will say, my biggest complaint about this movie is there's not enough William Atherton. Yeah, but we do get some William Atherton, which is better than none. Yeah. He didn't talk about the Twinkie at all, though. He did not. <laughs> he's he's the grown-up David. We meet him at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, because we start modern day. Yes. And uh, he's walking along, and uh, there's this, this homeless person who gets hit by a car. And everyone's sort of like, oh, just gawking and staring. But he gets down there and starts giving him you know, CPR and stuff. Yeah, mouth to mouth. They really focus on that, too, that like yeah. the dude's like dirty and haggard and stuff, but he just dives right, right. in to help doesn't, him. Doesn't hesitate. At all. And saves his life. And then we get him talking about how, you know, do you know what pain is? You know, what's your idea of pain? You don't know pain. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So then we get this flashback to 1958. Yeah, he's clearly haunted by something. And then he kind of goes into recounting what that is. Which, in the flashback to 1958, um, we kind of get through a little bit of exposition that... Meg is the new girl in town. You know, she's just moved in. Um, it's her story is mostly told through hearsay mm-hmm. from you know the the boys that her family's dead. They got hit by a car, and this is what this movie does so well, and what 
disturbs me the most about it is how real it is. It feels very natural. Um, that the the boys focus in on the horrible details. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, they were they were dead instantly. They got hit by a fucking Chrysler. Yeah, da- <laughs> David is not quite as um, I don't know vicious as his friends are. Because um, we meet him, there's kind of this cute meet with him and Meg. Yeah, he's at the river. He's checking, uh, catching crayfish and stuff like that. That's how he finds out a little bit about her and stuff. But I mean, there's an instant connection. Yeah, she just kind of walks up, asks what he's doing, and he just was like, "Hey, do you want to try? You yeah, can, you can try to you." Yeah. Um, but then when he goes to meet his, goes to hang out with his neighbors, his friends, like the the youngest brother is feeding night crawlers to ants. Yeah, you know, there's, there's already that little trend toward. <laughs> You know, viciousness they have. It made me think of um, the start of the reflecting skin. Yes. Where they're wanting to torment the frogs. Right. Yeah. 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 It, but it has a very, like, I would say almost like Stand By Me vibe, where it's like this idyllic 1950s kids running around, having fun. But that's sort of just the surface layer mm-hmm. of things. Yep. And I had text Jason when I was watching it and asked how long it's been since he'd seen it, because there's one particular character. So it's uh, towards the beginning. It's the older kid, Eddie, Eddie, mm-hmm. that's smoking and like trying yeah. to talk all big and act all tough shit and everything. It's actually um, the guy who plays Joel from the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, and so it's really difficult to yeah. watch him yeah. after, <laughs> after watching him and only knowing him from Miss Maisel and then seeing him, which is an awesome show. If you're not watching it, you should. And then seeing him in this, you're like, oh. Oh no, Joel! No, get, Joel. oh my no, God, Joel! Don't get involved in this. And Joel. the horrible thing is, it's about the same time period too. Because yeah. Mrs. Maisel was set there in the '60s. Yeah, it's like he grew up to become. You know, this is who he was before the show. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. His neighbor, it's uh, Ruth Chandler, and she has uh, three sons: Willie, Ralphie, and Donnie. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of the cool mom, I guess, on the street. She's the cool mom. She gives the kids beers. Uh, you know, and she'll she talks straight to them and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I think uh, David even calls her one of the gang. Yeah, she feels one like point. one of the gang. Yeah, and see, her character bothers me from the beginning because I don't think that she's the cool mom. I think she's a very fucked up individual. Well, yeah, obviously, who has like very <laughs> that's apparent to us, the viewer, but not to. But the when kids. you're like a 13, 14 year old kid, she's awesome. Uh, I don't know. I knew I had some friends whose parents were those parents. And I never thought they were that cool, but you know, I was a big square. So, right. I, and it, I think that's partially where David is too. Cause he's never quite David. I think David knows, like, I yeah. don't think this yeah, is the I mean, way he'll have a beer or something, you know, but it's not like, yeah, he doesn't jive completely with the other kids. And also speaking of Ruth, I mean, Blanche Baker is awesome in this movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Props on this. This is the type of character that is so hard to play. I think cause you really have to go for it. Yeah. And you just, I mean, ask William Atherton. You know, you play a bad guy and people think of you as that bad guy. Mm -hmm. There's no getting out of it. You're typecasted forever. So, (laughs) Um, and then we also talk, they also talk a little about playing the game in quotation marks. Oh, yes, yes. The game. And the book goes into much more detail about that, about the game. But basically, what we see is. They like blindfold one of the younger girls, and she has to go find the kids who are hiding, and she has to hit them with an apple or something, right? Mm-hmm. But then they start chasing her with the apples. It seems like one of those kids' games that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like it doesn't matter what you do, and this is kind of spelled out a bit more in the book. 
It doesn't matter what you do, you're fucked. You're it. Right. The you're, rules you're, have no purpose other than to it. just like shit on someone. Yeah. So then they tie her up and they're asking her all these personal questions and stuff like that. And in the book, they like actually strip her and, and shit like that. So, you know, it's even worse. It starts off. I think it's good that they don't well, no, you, go yeah, that far right. here because it kind of starts, you really start getting the um, impression of what kind of kids these are. Right. You know, it really, this is all just exposition to set up. Very dysfunctional. You it's know. also important to keep those kids more or less in those young age ranges. So, yeah. you, you know, of course you don't want to show too much, you know. Well, and and specifically, you know, like they start asking something like, did you suck dick or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, like they start asking very wrong questions to ask and like inappropriate questions, things that are not <laughs> for their age level or whatever. But I'm not going to say it's not for their age level because Jesus Christ, like when I taught fourth grade, the shit that some of those kids would say was like, <laughs> oh yeah, the no. fuck man. Like yeah, It's funny because then you think like, where did this come from? And as we learn in the film, it comes from the mother. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to a degree, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, I think this film really is, way ahead of its time too in the in the book itself because I think it's really talking a lot about toxic masculinity. Yeah, the book came out in eighty nine. Mm-hmm. And that's way, way ahead of its time from you know, that if it feels like just within the last fifteen years we've really been addressing to- toxic masculinity and like what it means to be a man and yeah. you know and this really <laughs> this <laughs> really gets in there. Right. About what it means to be not just a man, a human, but like specifically where these are all male right children um and even the same you get these different interactions too with david and his dad and his mom mm-hmm. and you see already Much more like a traditional 1950s family structure yeah but you already see how conflicted david is you know like his view of what a man is is what his dad does mm-hmm. and he's at least he's respectful to the mother he works hard even when his dad is not yeah. you know um Sorry, I got a little jumped ahead. No, that's good. A little bit on good. that. No, it's good. Yeah. Um, a lot of the setting involves this fair that's going on in town, and there's this telling scene. Like when we really first see, see that things aren't great with Ruth is when she's sitting around with the kids, they're watching TV, smoking, drinking beer, and she's talking about the fair and like how what they need is a good hoochie coochie show like they used to have. <laughs> yeah. So she kind of dances around a little bit suggestively and she stuff hikes like that. her skirt up. Yeah. Too. Like yeah. Half shows some ass. And she's talking about sexual things with the boys that she really should not be talking about. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's already, like, the way she's presenting Meg and the way she's talking about Meg is already, Meg is a, a piece of meat. Yeah. Um, and even less than a piece of meat to her. It's somebody she's stuck with that she mm-hmm. didn't want to have in the first place. And but, it's a younger, attractive girl full of potential that she no longer has. Who's yeah. very nice to everyone and everyone seems to like. Yeah. So, of course, she's going to take out all of her rage and hatred. We don't learn much about Ruth's husband. He's not in the picture. Yeah, we don't know why. She mentioned he's like a deadbeat at some point. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like he was a smarter person. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, you know, too, also with Ruth, that scene, like talking about the carnival, like uh, when she's talking about all of that, she's very disdainful of, like, I guess, kind of the the center of like who runs things in the city and stuff. She talks about how like, Oh, they would never allow that right. now. Yeah. And she's like a lot of disdain, I guess for the people that's like her age range now that are kind of like movers and shakers about the city. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is, is that the book was written in 89. The film came out in 2000. We've already seven. said seven and still it's the same fucking conversation over and over. Like you hear Ruth is the, 
uh, everybody gets so offended these days. Yeah. yeah. You can't say anything anymore. <laughs> I'm just telling like it is. She yeah. is that fucking person. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. right. and it just makes you, I think part of the anger of this film that it brings up is it reminds you that we haven't changed. Right. As much as we want to say that we've changed and evolved, we fucking haven't. Not really. Unfortunately, um, yeah. Now, granted, Ruth goes on to be an absolutely more horrible human True. being than hopefully any of these assholes who keep saying this shit that are... Yeah. Not not every Trump supporter is probably like her. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the advanced class. <laughs> um, one of the first like early telling things that something's not right um, that I thought was interesting is uh, it's, we, it's a scene where it's at like a public pool. And mm-hmm. David's going, he's going to buy like a burger or something. And Meg happens to show show up there, and she asks if she can have one. Yeah. She says she hasn't eaten in like two days. Yeah. And we get a slight glimpse of this in the house in the scene prior, where they're all going, they're all, Ruth has taken all the boys, and she tells Meg, now stay out of that icebox, can't have you yeah. eating all that you, ice cream. You stay here, take fat. care of your sister. Yeah, don't get in the icebox. Yeah. And it seems like a, not, I mean, it's not an innocent thing to say, but it seems like more of a jest than yeah. a... Um, actual, <laughs> but still extremely mean. I'm not fucking you know? feeding you. That's that sort thing. of mental cruelty. But we, this gives us a chance to already see David's character as well, um, because David doesn't hesitate and yeah. just buys her, you know, gives her his food and buys himself another one. Yeah, and Meg starts talking about how she used to paint stuff like that, but can't do that now. But it's interesting because what David tells her at first is like, well, you know, maybe there's just some misunderstanding between the two of you, mm. like. Maybe you should talk to her. Maybe I could talk to her. Yeah. And we can clear up whatever this weird problem is. And of course, Meg already knowing is just like, no, no, yeah. don't, don't say anything. It's don't way do worse anything. Than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the painting stuff, he encourages her to paint. He, first, he wants her to paint a picture for Ruth. And she says, no, Ruth would just sneer at it and burn it or something mm-hmm. and tell me I'm stupid. And he's like, well, paint one for me then. Which we've already seen this, I think, at this point in the movie, because right before he starts the flashback, he like in the yeah. ad- adult time period, he pulls out this like watercolor painting. Yeah, that was obviously done by a child. Whoa, that was un- uncalled <laughs> Look, for. Look, it, it wasn't that great, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Jesus, man, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of perspective. There's like no shading. Um, and it, it is <laughs> <You're a skiro. laughs> And it's also him by the river, which is the first scene right in the flashback. Yeah. Jason's just already like laying into this girl's <laughs> artistic ability. But yeah, Meg makes that for uh, for David and brings it to him, and it's this really sweet scene to you where like he's on the porch with his mom, <laughs> yeah, and his mother just stays there on the porch. Yeah. She won't go away, <laughs> watching the whole thing. She's like, "Oh, that's sweet." But it that little scene is very subtle, though, just to show you the difference in yeah family dynamics and family dynamics and lifestyles that. Like, David's mother thinks it's really sweet mm-hmm. and thinks that Meg is a really sweet girl, you know, and is, like, very supportive and just very, like, well, this is really nice. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ruth would have been absolutely vulgar and cruel about yeah, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Which, we, <laughs> which she becomes. Yeah, which we find out she does do. And we also get, David gets some glimpses across the yard of, like, Ruth uh, mistreating Susan. Because yeah. Susan's trying to help with laundry, and she's in fucking, you know, her legs are in braces and shit. Yeah. I'm assuming polio. Yeah. Well, it's from the wreck, they you know, say. That, yeah, I think it's from the accident. Yeah. Well, I'm still assuming polio. <laughs> so, now, in, in real life, the young daughter, uh, the young sister did have polio. See? I, every, it's the 50s. Everybody's got polio. <laughs> right, right. It's just a little polio. It's like a 50-50 chance, yeah. I guess. Um, and she's, like, dropping the laundry, and Ruth's going off on her. So that's, that's probably David's first glimpse that things really aren't. Mm-hmm. Too kosher over there. 
Have you all, so this brings me to a question that I wanted to ask. Like, growing up, did you ever see this with any kids that you knew? Hmm. Off the top of my head, I I don't know. I don't think so, but... I, I think so, but it's also very much like in the movie. Because especially when you're a kid... That's exactly you, the point that I wanted to build on. You don't know what is exactly appropriate and what isn't it's not your home like it's not the way it is in your home but then you start to wonder like is this is this okay is this a normal thing because growing up like i played baseball and i watched a lot of interactions between sons and and fathers Mm -hmm. and realized like oh Mm -hmm. as i got older i realized holy shit um that's not okay. Yeah. You know, like the things that dads would say to their sons and yep. the way that they would treat yep. them. And you realize, oh shit, that's fucking abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were being abused. But as a kid, I, I think you Maybe can it's really, normal. Yeah, I think you, know. you can really identify with David and like, you want to get mad at David. You really want to in this film just because you want someone to do something. Yeah, I definitely right. struggled with that my first time I watched it. But, but also, you got to think about the setting, too. It's the 50s. And uh-huh. again, the book does a better job of, of hammering this home. Um, but it's like, especially back then, you didn't talk back to adults. You didn't yeah. question adults. Right. You know, any adult would have had the right to, like, smack you if yeah. you were misbehaving or doing something wrong. You know, and your parents probably wouldn't say shit about that. They would say, oh, well, thank you. You know, thank you for disciplining them. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and, and I think too these early scenes where David's seeing this, one of his rationalizations he brings up is like, "Well, she's probably not used to having like daughters around because she's only had yeah. sons this whole time." Yeah, he's trying to rationalize everything. It's uh, yeah, I I found myself thinking a lot during these scenes, not so much when it gets extreme, right? You know, I would like, hope not. <laughs> but like in these early scenes where you just see little interactions between Ruth and the girls, that you start to started to remind me of when I was a kid, just seeing the way different families did different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some were, I mean, some are super loving and super caring. And then you see others that were very dismissive and very like negative, verbally abusive yeah. tone, you know, and like things that, and I always would think like, should I say something? Mm-hmm. And then I would ask my mom and she's like, you know, that's not really our place. You know, we don't do that in our house. Yeah. You know, and even then, my mom is like trying to steer clear of and cr- criticizing <laughs> someone else's right. parents. And when you're yeah. a kid, it's worse because you you don't you don't really know what is necessarily right or wrong in a lot of ways. Right. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's hard to because you're not supposed to challenge adults. You're not supposed to question things. You know, because so. ideally they're supposed to be guardians and yeah. caretakers of right. you. So. And then you grow up and learn that everyone's a giant pile of shit. <laughs> yeah, that nobody knows anything more than you do. And yeah, it's all bullshit. Um, anyway. So to wrap up that painting <laughs> subplot, because that's kind of like the last thing before it starts to ramp up. Um, she gives him the painting. Mm-hmm. He's happy with it. He loves yeah, it. nice painting. And then he goes over. Oh, you changed your tune on that, didn't you? <laughs> or was that just fucking sarcasm? <laughs> <laughs> He's just yes-anding us. So He's gaslighting us over here. <laughs> um, but he goes out on a limb to show up with everyone there at Ruth's place and to give Ruth the painting and say like, oh, Meg made this for you. And Meg's shitting her pants. She's like, yeah. no, no, the uh, entire time. That broke my heart for Meg. Yeah. And Ruth is just so cruel in oh, this moment. Oh, she lays into her. And the way she does it, though, is worse than if she... She never criticized the artwork. Mm-hmm. She never criticized... <laughs> like, <laughs> no some people. <laughs> uh, she didn't criticize the fact that she painted it. She didn't... All she criticized was 
she took it all sexual. Right. Yeah. And took it all to, you know, what are you getting out of this? You yeah. know, that every, that basically every interaction between a man and a woman is a transaction. Yeah. She uses it as like a teaching moment for her sons. And like her whole point is like, see, if you're nice to a girl, she'll do things for you. Mm-hmm. David was nice to Meg and then Meg made him a painting. Right. Is that all you did for him, Meg? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And right. that's where she keeps going. And it's just humiliating. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and she even mentions how, tells David how his dad is like fucked half the women in town. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know, you can see it on his face. It's like, what? <laughs> oh, you, you know? see the rage well up in him. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where he's already, that's where he starts to realize Ruth is not, Ruth is not a good person. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is now where he starts to ask questions to his dad pretty soon after this. Not, you too, know? not, well, too much, not much longer. Yeah. But. It takes um, a few more things to really get him to start really questioning. <laughs> so I guess now we should get to the actual like escalation of things. The David pops over. The kids are all playing around. They realize that Meg's ticklish. Yeah. So, so they, like all three boys have her like in the corner. Yeah, trapped up in the corner, tickling her, and some of them get a little handsy. It's very much framed like a gang rape. It yeah. really is. Um, and just natural reaction, she shoves him and slaps him. Yeah, it's it's the young kid too. And David's never involved in this. David right. is standing on the out, outside of the door watching. Now you you can see David's already like, "Hey, just let her go." You know, like maybe you should stop. I don't think he actually verbalizes it, but mm-hmm. I think his yeah. body language tells you that he's really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, with the situation, but of course, the little shit that gets smacked after he grabbed a boob. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, Ralphie. Ralphie goes downstairs, <laughs> gets Ruth, brings her back up, and you know it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. No, like, you know it's just yeah. going to go terribly. And this is the like, Meg runs out of the room, right? Yeah. And then they open the closet door, and Susan's in there. They just trapped in there. And it's like, what the fuck? Did they just like <laughs> have they like trapped her in the closet? I mean, probably. Or is she hiding in the closet? I feel like know? they probably put her in the closet. I would say they put her in there. That just seems like such a like bully little kid thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And um, then of course, yeah, Ruth comes in, and because ugh. because Meg won't come out, she decides to put her ire onto Susan. Yeah, Susan has to pay for her, and she starts this whole lecture about what it means to be a conniver. And that right. she's in connivance with Meg. Yeah. And then she's like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know Meg did a bad thing. She hit Ralphie, um, but you'd forgive him, for, forgive her for that, right? Because you love her because she's your sister. And she's like, well, yeah, I guess I would. Yeah. And she's well, like, then you're a conniver. <laughs> she's, well, then you're yeah. in connivance with her because that's wrong. And you should you know, not like her for doing something that's yeah. wrong. She says you can't forgive someone because you love them. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then she beats Susan and makes the boys watch. Not just beats her. She strips her, yeah. bends her over, bare naked. It's like a wire brush or something. She's it's a toilet brush, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that David is, at this point, David is like, I need to go home. And Ruth actually tells him to stay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Ruth turns to David and she's like, now you know that you don't need to tell your parents anything that happens here. What mm-hmm. happens here stays here. Right. And because she can already <laughs> see David's going to be... He's the weak link, and yeah. he's going to be a problem for her. Right. Um, and this is also where, um, once Meg finally comes out and is like trying to protect Susan, uh, Ruth takes the ring. She's got like a ring necklace. Her mother's ring. That's her ring. like memento yeah. of her dead mother. Yeah. Um, oh, God. And that just kills me later with what happens with that <sighs> ring. Uh, that was a rough scene. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think there's already talk at this point that they're going to have a sleepover. Right. And... David's mom is totally against him going over there. Right. Cause she knows that there's 
something between him and Meg. But I also think David's mom is also skeptical of Ruth. Yeah. I don't think she likes her. They don't spend the time to get into that, but I got that vibe. Yeah, I don't think she likes her because Ruth is not that likable. <laughs> like, she's really not. No. Um, you get the sense that she's the type that people would be nice to in public, but then turn around and be like, God damn it. No. I <laughs> fucking hate that lady. Uh, but her, when they're a neighbor, you've got to keep that, maintain that. Right. I mean, yeah. I don't. I just burn fucking bridges everywhere. <laughs> and then, too, like the kids are friends with David. So it's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what are you going to do? So, um, and this was an interesting, I thought this was an interesting scene, personally. They're sitting around the table, and um, David's mom is like, no, you're not going over there. You know, there's two girls that live over there. You're not going over there to stay the night. And David's dad is sitting there in typical like 1950s dad, <laughs> like eating and being oblivious. He's like, "What's the problem here? What's yeah. the problem?" And she's like, "Well, you know, he wants to, he wants to stay over there." He's like, "Let him." Yeah. And just completely like shuts, you know. Yeah. No discussion. No discussion. <laughs> and then even was like, "Is there any more coffee?" Yeah. <laughs> and look at her like, go. "Oh God!" And her reaction, <laughs> she just like slams her stuff down on the table and goes and gets some coffee. Which God, if I were to say something like that, the coffee would be poured down my urethra <laughs> that would become its own uh, extreme horror film yeah. you want to see a grown man get coffee poured down his dick watch this film but it's, it's funny because when she storms off david's like thanks dad yeah, and he, yeah, yeah. don't mention it you know and also uh uh david had seen meg talking to a, uh the police at the fairgrounds yeah too well some of the kids have seen that too like mm-hmm. uh Ruth's kids and they're like nervous about it mm-hmm and we don't see the cop come, but we we hear Ruth talk about it later. And apparently the cop just kind of poked his nose in and was like, okay, whatever, and leaves. Yeah. 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 So that's pretty de rigueur for the day. Probably even now, honestly. Well, we get now it, it comes to the sleepover scene. And when David gets there, everybody's down in the basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we had a scene with the basement at the start of the film. I liked how it was because it was so ominous. It's the first time David we see David go to their house. Mm-hmm. And he goes into the basement and there's like row and row of like linens and clothes hung up that are drying. And he goes through them all and gets to where there's like this back room and it's just this dark void and you yeah. can't see what's in there. And then like one of the kids like hop out and scare him. Right. And it's just this little teaser yeah. that kind of sets it's that like, up. It's like, get used to this basement. You're going to be spending a lot of time in it. Yeah. Well, when he comes down to the basement, all the kids are down there. Um, and Meg is actually tied up in the basement and she's hoisted with... Her arms mm-hmm. tied from side to side. Um, but she's blindfolded and gagged. Yes. And um, Ruth is teaching the, quote, teaching the boys a lesson, you know, about what happens when you lie and when you misbehave. Mm-hmm. And um, But also they're teaching her how to play the game. Yeah. Yeah, which is that you have to confess. Yeah. And answer the question. she's going along. It's like, it's, it's, it's exciting her, honestly. You know, you could tell. And she's uh, totally into it. One of the boys asks, like, immediately goes sexual with her again, you know, and like, what were you doing to yourself under the covers or in your room? Mm-hmm. And it gets to the point, like, Meg is just like, okay, fuck you all. You know, she's just not going to say anything. She's not going to do anything. Well, now Ruth is basically telling them that she can strip them. Yeah. And David's yeah. like protesting. I and mean, then one of the, I think it's Donnie, like his, you know, one closest to his age says, we have permission. Yeah. <laughs> we have permission. Um, so at this point, 
I don't I don't remember which I didn't care enough it's, about the uh, it's Willie I think to remember which one was which Willie's the I, one that's like the most like sexually interested in her yeah he's the older one I he's believe he's the older one yeah and he starts cutting her clothes off with a knife um, like a typical boy he can't work a bra he cuts it off <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ruth tells him not to touch her because she's dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he ends up stripping her completely naked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when Meg says she will confess. Yeah. Because if not, she'll get Susan down here and then Susan will confess. If Meg it's also know. really sad because where she's blindfolded, she doesn't know a lot of what's going on. And there's a part where in, during all of this, she kind of asks, is David here? Yeah. And one of the other boys says, yeah, he's here. And you can see David's like, you can tell his heart sinks and it's yeah. just in his face. He just wants to disappear. So <laughs> well, and, and Meg's heart sinks too. Yeah. Because she doesn't want him to see her like this. And and, and I think there's always that question for her, is he involved? Yeah. Right. How how close is his connection to them? Yeah. How mm-hmm. complicit is he? Because um, she doesn't know. She's blindfolded and mm-hmm. at this point they've ungagged her. But as they're going to leave her now, uh, strung up. Like Ruth basically tells the boys to go to go to bed, but reminds them again, don't touch her. Yep, she's not clean. Mm-hmm. You know. So of course, in the middle of the night, they sneak down to, to try to grope her. Yeah, but she resists. She says, "No, I'll start screaming if you touch me." And then Ruth will come down and get in trouble. And it's sad when they're planning that too, because they're all kind of huddled together in the dark. And you can tell David's like, "I just want to go to sleep. I just want it to be the next day. Yeah. I just want to get to the next thing." And then he kind of has to go along with them just to go down there to make sure, like. Mm-hmm. To try to keep them in check in whatever way he can. Yeah, and he actually gives her a little bit of slack from the ropes so she can relax a little bit. And this is the hard part because I think about like what I want to teach my son. Right, just to immediately <laughs> shut that down. Never yeah, support it. Like, the, and that, that is toxic. So. That, well, I hope that's where you're going with this. <laughs> no, but like, I was worried for a minute. No, but that is toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like, to, to, like what it means to be a man, and I and I don't want to say that in the form of gender, but like in like what we perceive as what right, it means right. to be a man is to when you see injustice, you stand up to it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if you might get the shit kicked out of you, you do what's right, and if mm-hmm. you think that something is wrong, you stand up and say this isn't right, you know, and it might mean that you get ridiculed, you might get picked on, you might be made fun of, but that's what that's what makes you. Sure. Uh, that's what quote a man mm-hmm. is to stand up for those who are incapable of standing up for themselves. And I think this is a failure on David's father's part. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, major failure that this isn't what he's taught him. Well, there's a conversation. It's jumping a little bit, but one of their conversations later, one of the things his dad tells him is like basically just to stay out of trouble. Yeah. Cause he, we get to a really interesting point because after David's seen this start to go farther and farther and farther, and they basically have started torturing her now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, David thinks that he needs to do something, and he asked his father, um, is, yeah, it, is it okay to ever hit a woman? And he asks. And his dad basically gives him the like little pat answer <laughs> of like, well, no. Unless. A, yeah, <laughs> no, but. Yeah. Sometimes they just make you have to. And, it was a very 1950s answer. <laughs> God, I mean, I don't even think it's stuck in 1950s. I've heard people fucking say that now, sadly. Yeah. You yeah. know, like... And you know what this also made me think of, and it made me feel bad about it and about myself a little bit watching it, is, like, um, the situation that David's in at this point. Uh, so, like, growing up, like, in school and stuff, like, I was bullied some, I had friends that were bullied and stuff, and I can remember times where, like, I saw someone being bullied, and I kind of just didn't do anything, and it was the reason was is I was thinking, like, well... 
it's better to not get involved. I'm pretty sure we've all done because that. And you were glad it wasn't you. You're glad, you're glad it's not you, and then you know if you don't do anything, you're not opening yourself up to more of it yourself. Yep. We've all been there, um, I think. I mean, yeah. one of the only fights that I was ever in um, was actually with a guy that I'm friends with now. We're all friends with him. Um, was because I saw him bullying mm. somebody else, and I stepped... Well, I saw a bullying situation happen, and I was like, fuck this shit, and I stepped in, and then another dude got roped into it, and we ended up fighting that were none of us were involved. But but yeah, that's the I learned my lesson. Like mm. that's what happens yeah. when you get involved. Um, I just know like when you go looking for reviews on this film, it's kind of got like a mixed reception. But if you if you troll Letterboxd like I do, uh, there's a lot of one star reviews where people just like totally disconnect and shit on the film. Because they're like, I can't believe that David didn't do anything and how far it had to go before he took any action. What's he supposed to do? And I'm like, you, I, I like that you're privileged enough to have never been in a situation like what David's in. It's different if you're in that moment. And I yeah. see what they're saying. Like, yes, that is what we should be saying. And that's the emotion you're supposed to have. You're supposed to be angry about the situation. Yeah. But like... But it's like the kid said, they have permission. But, <laughs> you know... <laughs> And now, what am and adults I wrong? Adults know everything, but right? like They're... the second time the police come, that was from David, right? Yeah, yeah. So David does do something. What he thinks he knows is the right thing to do. Which, okay, well, I can't involve my parents, but I know this is wrong. So maybe if I just like drop the hint yeah. to the police, and even right. his dad says, some, you know, just mind your own business. Mind your yeah. own business, and you'll be fine. Yeah, is what he tells him when he asks. So him yeah, he's okay. getting a lovely life lesson from his father. Which it sounds like that's how his dad's lived his whole life. Yeah, you know, stay yeah. out of just don't don't bother anybody else. Stay out of trouble. Don't get your don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so David, what what pisses me off about those reviews is yes, David did do something mm-hmm. because initially he did what he thought was supposed to be right that he would be taught to do as a kid for that. Right. So he tried to go to his dad. His dad didn't give him a solid answer. He does end up going to the police. And then they fail him. Which that's like, how many true crime stories are there where it's like, you go to the police and then the police fail yeah. the victim? Although I will say that, I mean, again, the book does a better job of hammering home why David doesn't. And this is one of the few cases where I think a bit more narration may have helped. Mm-hmm. Because, you know. Like if the adult David kept like. Right, kind of interjected little... every now and then, you know. Well, they only had William Atherton for a day. And that was <laughs> very evident. But still, I, th- I think you can. You know, infer what's going on in David's mind. I don't. I don't think it's that crazy to suspect. Remember, he's a twelve-year-old kid too in the fifties. Right. It's like I'm sure there are twelve-year-old kids now that wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are twelve-year-old kids that would say, "Yay, I'm getting involved with this." You know, just. So. A, I mean, it really depends on what your worldview is <laughs> yeah. and, and what you're taught to your worldview to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so David goes over to the house again, and Susan's like playing, making a puzzle. Um. David goes downstairs, and like all the neighborhood kids there now, like even the girls from before. Oh, before this though, there's a sad scene where I think it's the next day after the first night she's tied up. Um, we get Ruth trying to feed her toast. Oh yeah, and she's so dehydrated she can't even eat it. And Ruth gets so frustrated with her that as punishment they bring Susan down, and she makes one of the kids strip her. Right, and then Ruth spanks her again. Yeah, and she basically tells her like, anytime you disobey me now, Susan's gonna get punished for it. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, continue. No, right. So like all the kids are in it now. They're all playing because yeah, the there's game. there's the older kid that's like the greaser looking dude Eddie. Yeah. Um, and then there's two girls that kind of hang out in their friend group. Mm-hmm. Everybody's there. I think one of the girls is Eddie's little sister too. 
yeah. she was the one that was playing the game yeah. earlier that was blindfolded. Yeah. Um, and they're they're beating her. They get cigarettes and burn her. Yeah. Now a lot of this we don't see, which I think is the right move. On yeah, making you don't film. need to. Yeah, you don't need to see it. There comes a point where I think a lot of filmmakers don't know what don't know how to tell a proper story, so they rely on shock. Yeah. And when you actually tell a story, if you tell it well and you're a good filmmaker, you don't have to show it. You can do more with what you don't see. You know, just by reactions and by mm-hmm. emotions in your characters. Right. Yeah. And there's a scene where David tries to talk to his mom at night. Like she's oh, sleeping. That's so sad. Yeah, and he's trying to wake her up, but and the way but you, you can see the conflict, you and know? the way he starts to do it, he's like, "Mom, I'm really sorry. I have to tell you something." Yeah, but she doesn't wake up. Yeah. <laughs> Every this is so much of this film is like parental failure, adult failure. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's that's the whole point. Yeah, it's it's yeah. <laughs> you get pissed off all over again, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. I think it puts me in a different position now. I'm not saying that you wouldn't feel this if you don't have children, but I think when you do have children and you start having a little bit more introspection, thinking like, how do I want to be? What kind of father do I want to be? How do I make sure that my child grows up to be like a good human? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really care what he does in his life. I just want him to be a good human. Yeah, be a good person. That's really all I care about. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think about well, how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Like there's so many other factors and influences in the world that can completely change that, that you have to be all the time. And I think the only way to truly do that is model it. Like your Mm -hmm. kid has to see you doing that all the time. Yeah. Lead by example. Mm -hmm. And because like how many of us were, will choose to do things in our lives because we watched our parents fuck up and we don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to fuck up. But, like, you need to be honest about it. Yeah. But then yeah. you need to try to do as best as you can. And then when you watch a movie like this and you just realize, like, every little opportunity that David's parents had mm-hmm. to help him and help Meg and do the right thing, they just didn't fucking do it. I, I don't know how many parents I've seen that, and not to this scale. They're not, I wouldn't say they're abusing their child, but they're definitely ignoring their child yeah because they got all the shit in their life that they want to do or they're dealing with and stuff and it's just like i like what you said michael because it makes me think um about ruth still she's obviously not happy with her life or where she is but you can tell just through her actions and the way she talks like all of that she puts the blame on other people yeah she never tries to like own any of that or come to terms with any of it and Mm. she's making herself feel better by becoming this cool person that mm. is teaching the kids all the things that she wished someone else would have taught her. And then Meg's kind of a focus because like she is everything that Ruth would have liked to have been, yeah. but never had or didn't get to have. And it, I, I don't know, Jason, does the book go into any more introspection from the parents, like from David's parents? No, it's all point of view of David. So, I do find it interesting to kind of wonder how much David's parents might think is going on. Yeah. They can't be that oblivious. There's clearly some relationship there because like, if you believe Ruth, she knows stuff about his father. Right. Maybe maybe they all went to school together. We don't know, but like they can't be that oblivious to what's going on with the girls. And man, how many times have you seen 
you know, news uh, broadcast where there was some horrible thing committed in this house. That's Children true. were being abused for years, <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, they were so quiet. We didn't even know. And I always call fucking bullshit on that anyway, <laughs> because I'm like, you, fu- you know. Now you maybe don't, you don't want to get involved. It's like the well, that's David's the other, dad yeah. says. That's, like, that's just, where I was going. That's the other thing too is like, how much do you want to get into another family's life and what they yeah. got going on? Really, right? It's all. It's like they were chicken shit too, and we're just like, well, it's easier to not say anything. Yeah. And that was just like basically the thesis statement of this entire story, which oh, is yeah. just it's easier to not say anything. Yeah, to not do anything. Um, so yeah, so David gets the officer to go by again. It's an interesting scene because he's over there when it happens, and there's like a knock at the door. And at first, Ruth isn't gonna leave, and she's gonna send one of the kids. And then he's like, "Well, what if it's the police officer guy again? And you probably need to go up there to help get rid of him." He says something like, "Do you really want to leave that to them?" Yeah. <laughs> she's like, "Oh yeah, right." And this whole time. Ruth's appearance is getting even worse and worse. Like, yeah, she gets like paler, looks thinner yeah, almost. Her hair is not yeah. being made up. She's wearing like her nightgown and shit, and just like you get dressed to go to work from home. <laughs> yeah, well, at least I'm not torturing girls in my basement. That's true. Don't worry, <laughs> listeners. We are in his basement right now. It is tortured victim free, except we're torturing you with this podcast. <laughs> you know I mean? like... Yeah, at one point, because. Um, Ruth knows that David's sweet on Meg. At one point, he says that he will, she will kill, straight up kill David and Meg if he does anything. Mm-hmm. Like if he tells anyone or tries to rescue her. Yeah, anything. this is the big escalation from yeah. Ruth. This is where she's <laughs> truly. And you believe her. I mean, she's yeah. not bluffing. Yeah. Um, so she goes to take care of the uh, officer. Uh, Jennings is his name. Officer Jennings. Um, officer Useless. And he says, like, hey, I, I've heard that, like, Meg's got bruises on her. Someone's, like, hitting on her, beating her and stuff. Mm-hmm. What's going on with that? I'd, I'd like to check her out, get the, get the story. And with the help of her son, she kind of weaves this whole tale of, like, oh, it's just kids roughhousing. You know yeah. how it is. Yeah. They, they just got a little too rough by accident. And the whole time that her younger son is, like, in her arms. Yeah. And she's just loving all over him. Yeah. He, he's just a little guy. He's just a tiny fellow. He would never hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, and like... In fact, we, it's his birthday. We call him Officer Useless, but I think he does know something's up here. Yeah, but yeah. he doesn't do anything. I do makes, But how much of his hands are tied? You know, like, how how much can he truly do? He, he can he can you know see Meg. He can yeah. demand, hey, you got to produce Meg. Well, you know? she said at the time the girls are out shopping. Yeah. So she said even Meg's not here. Yeah, that's when you come back later, or maybe you stick around. Maybe you know, ask for a cup of coffee or something. That's okay. I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, he should. He should. Um, but at the same time, this doesn't surprise me at all because do you know how many fucking cps referrals my wife puts in on a daily basis and they never follow up on them i have no doubt you know and she's like she's checking up on there's no there's no money in that michael she's checking up on kids that she's seen that she's like yeah i'm no 100 percent they're being abused and the the cps is like if a doctor says hey this person's being abused you should probably fucking listen yeah you know cps is like we didn't follow up on it we we didn't find any evidence and it's like okay fuck you (laughs) fuck all of you didn't try very hard Uh, that's what makes this movie even more infuriating too is because it's still fucking happening oh yeah uh so while they're busy with the police officer david has a plan that he's hatched and he he loosens meg's bindings and he tells her that uh he's gonna give her some money well first he wants to give it to her and then she's like no if they found it on me they'd go crazy right and they agree that he's gonna stash it at the rock in the woods by the stream where Mm -hmm. they first met 
And he says, you know, I'm just going to loosen these. You can sneak out at night. Just run away. Just get away. He slips her a pocket knife, right? Yeah. yeah. He says, you might need this. And he says, just get away and get safe. Get to somewhere where they can't get you. We will come back for Susan somehow and get her too. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen. He goes back to check the rock the next day and the money's still there. Mm-hmm. Then he goes back to the house. And that's just when things are even. Because he, he goes there to find them raping her. Yeah, it's uh, Willie again, the the one that's been the most focused on her. Yeah, and Eddie's there again, and then Donnie, which is like not the youngest, but I guess it's be the middle middle kid. He wants to take a turn with Meg next, <laughs> and Ruth tells him that that would be incest because he'd be uh, a skinny dipping in his brother's scum, <laughs> as she puts it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ruth's a monster, but she she does have some. You know, she's got to draw the line somewhere, right? It's so disturbing. Yeah. She's like, you know, I guess Eddie or David could take a turn. And, and Eddie says, like, oh, "I just want to cut her." Eddie says, "I just want to cut her." It makes you wonder what's up with Eddie over there. Uh, uh, okay, oh, I mean, I don't think Eddie stood a chance at being a normal human. <laughs> he was gone from the beginning. Yeah, you know? and Ruth decides that she needs to be marked. So people know who she is. Mm-hmm. So men will know to stay away from her. And she says that a woman is better off loathsome in this world. Yay, Ruth. Because she's had bad luck with men, been mistreated, whatever. And yeah. Then all women are just better off being loathsome. Well, and the other thing we haven't commented on is the um, appearance of Meg keeps getting worse and worse. Oh, and worse. It's, it's, it's yeah. hard to see her. The dehydration, the yeah. like the malnutrition, just especially the way they make her lips look. And you can just tell like you feel them. Yeah, you can feel them and it hurts. Um, and, and probably this is probably a good time to call out uh, Blythe Afarth. I think her name is how yeah. I pronounce it, who plays Meg. She does a great job. I mean, she's, this is not an easy role to play. No. <laughs> and she's, she, she commits. I actually have a note about this too. Uh, they interviewed her about the film and she said that all the scenes that she had to shoot where she's tied up or blindfolded were like very wearing for her. She almost couldn't get through them. Yeah, I imagine. She said, uh, it's extremely humiliating. It's a little bit scary being so without control. It's scary feeling helpless and it's humiliating hanging there and dangling. And then it's even more petrifying to be in that situation and have one of your senses taken away from you. Mm. Harsh. And she probably said that she was, I think in her early twenties or yeah. something portraying this role. So I never felt like, thankfully that the film didn't care that she looked older. Yeah. Like she looked young, but she didn't look, I think she could pass for 16. Probably. Yeah. But at least you felt there was no exploitation going right. on. You if know, you dropped her in like as... one of those eighties teen comedies, she would just blend in yeah. with every other like 20 something playing right. a teenager. <laughs> but she's, she's great in this. Yeah, and I just can't imagine how hard this role had to be. So yeah, I mean, props you, you, to her. You got to go to a place, you know, a bad place or something like this, or just go to a good place and hope it's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they take a heated bobby pin and kind of carve into her stomach. Mm-hmm. I think I fuck fuck me. Is yeah, what they carve into her. Yeah, and the kids are all very pleased with this, but uh, Ruth's not. She wants to take it a step further. Yeah, because. Even if guys don't want her, she's still going to want guys. So they got to take care of that one spot. And I hate how she justifies this because she even brings up like, well, in other cultures, they do this. Uh, Yeah. So she takes a blowtorch to her. And this is like, this is finally where David breaks. Mm -hmm. As this is going on, he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to run. I'm going to go get help. It's done. It's over. I got to do something. But 
predictably, they they yeah. capture him and throw him down and beat the crap out of him. Tie him up. Uh, he wakes up some time later, and Susan's down there trying to comfort Meg. Uh, he manages to get his bonds undone. And we get some more backstory with Susan here that's also pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Because now we find out like why why the whole escape plan failed. Right. Is because Susan revealed that Ruth had been molesting her. Yep. And when Meg learned that, she's like, well, I can't leave Susan. If she's just here by herself, that's not an option. Yeah. So when she escaped at night, she tried to sneak upstairs and get Susan, and they caught her. Yep. This so fucking movie, man. It's so infuriating because it's like, you could have got away, but it's like, yeah, you shouldn't leave it's the It's not the movie, dude. Uh, it's not the movie. It's oh, real I know. life. I mean, it's, <laughs> that's the problem. Um, so yeah, this is like the lowest point of the movie. It's like, what are you going to do? David's attempt has failed. Their plans have failed. And um, he finally decides that he just has to escalate his own action to to resolve yep. this situation. It's like to look around for weapons, something to use. You, you have polio. Give me your crutch. <laughs> yeah, <it's> just, yeah, <laughs> crutch is perfect. Um, so he concocts a plan where they're going to light a fire in the basement to lure Ruth down there, and then he's going to jump her, take yep. her out. And the fire also starts billowing out the windows down there, so like neighbors could see all this. Everyone knows something's show. going on. And I like it too because they do a shot of the basement door, and then you see the smoke kind of shooting mm-hmm. out beneath it. Yeah. So yeah, sure enough, Kit, they run down there. And probably the most satisfying moment in the entire movie. <laughs> yes. He just starts wailing on roof with that crutch. The first time I saw it, I just stood and was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Don't stop. Keep hitting her. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he kills her just straight up. Yeah. Which then at this point, I didn't know much about the, the true crime story. So I Googled it and I was like, <laughs> God fucking damn it. Because <laughs> yeah. it didn't happen that way. Yeah, right. I've been wondering where to bring this no. in. I guess maybe I'll mention it now. So well, we're almost done with the... With the uh, yeah, let's finish yeah. the film first and then we'll talk about the true crime a little bit. Um, There's like a moment of happiness that was just <laughs> dashed by a simple internet search. Uh, Ruth's kids come in. They tackle David down, get him off their mom. Kicking his ass. Start beating the crap out of him. Willie pops that knife out again. He's going to just yeah, kill David. Murder him, yeah. And drawn by the smoke and the commotion, the officer guy, Jennings, shows up again. And he tells him to freeze and drop that knife. Yeah. So the police... And even he can't ignore <laughs> the evidence before him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the police take control of the situation. They get Susan out of there. Uh, they mention they're going to have her testify about everything that's happened. Yeah. And, and Davis is trying to comfort Ruth. Uh, Ruth fuck Ruth. <laughs> Meg. Uh, Meg. Ruth dead. She, she can stay fucking Meg's dead. like on the bed and he kind of lays down so he can be face to face with her and actually talk to her. She's so weak. She can barely speak now. Yeah. And he tells her like, you know, hey, it's, it's over. You're going to be okay now. And she's like, I, I can't yeah. go any further. Yeah. And she asked for him to get her ring yeah get the that ring was back. the worst oh yeah. yeah that was the worst and then she thanks him says she loves him and then she just kind of just fades yeah. and the cop comes back in as david is sort of just like breaking down yeah. from this and you can tell he's just like oh he doesn't know how to yeah oh no he's, he's not equipped to process any of this <laughs> uh-oh uh-oh and that's pretty much... Yeah, it brings us back to the modern day. We see um, adult David. He goes to the little, like, riverbed. He walks there to, like, check it out again. And mm-hmm. he's kind of just milling about. In retrospection. Um, yep. And he says that no matter what happens, that past is always going to haunt him. But he says that Meg taught him an important lesson. And it's that it's what you do last that counts. Yep. And now you know why Walter Peck was such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
And there's some more like backstory with adult David in the first, like the opening that we don't really, we didn't talk about it. It's not super relevant, I guess, but he mentions that he's got like a, he's on a second wife. It doesn't seem like his life has been like particularly yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, um, he is like a Wall Street like broker trader yeah, guy. He makes like three hundred thousand a year. He's super rich, but um, drives a Dodge Stratus. <laughs> you can tell like his life's been incomplete ever since this. Yeah, he's still an emotional wreck from the whole thing. Oh, God, how would you not be? Right, but you know, at least he saved that man who got hit. So that's that's something, yeah. right? And I like to imagine that's just him now. Like anytime he comes across, yeah, just doesn't hesitate yeah. and does what he needs to do. Whew. Rough, watch. rough watch, rough <sighs> watch. See, this to me, this 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 is a disturbing film. This is an extreme yes, film. Absolutely, it's not just gore and and craziness happening. Like t- this hits me much harder than like a Serbian film does. Oh yeah, yeah. see, I thought about that too because like a Serbian film, there is that black comedy angle in it, and then it's so it's so a cartoon, it's so over the top, top, so goofy. Like you can't really take it that seriously. Like yeah, that probably happens somewhere, but right, and it is disturbing. Things it shows is are are disturbing, but at the same time, it's just so crazy. <laughs> and here, it not only feels real, but then as you get into it, you learn that oh, in fact, it is very real. It happens all the time. <laughs> well, and you you straddle a line of extreme and exploitation, mm-hmm. and. And I think sometimes it's just easier. There's nothing titillating about this movie. No. Right? There's no exploitation. It's going easier on for filmmakers to take the exploitation route because well, sure. you what... don't have to sit in that realm of. <laughs> yeah. And you know me, I love exploitation. I got no problem with it. Mm-hmm. But some subjects deserve a bit more respect. <laughs> uh, this one specifically, I think this um, props needs to be given to how this is handled. I mean, you have. We haven't talked about Ketchum much. Uh, I figured we would a little bit yeah, before we wrap but up. Like you get an amazing manuscript basically to go by, you know, of of a story to tell and how to frame the film and mm-hmm. shot for shot and all that kind of stuff. But like the filmmakers could go either way. It's very faithful to the book. Uh, he didn't write the screenplay. It was written by Philip Nutman, who is another popular horror writer, mm. and also uh, Daniel Farrens whose first writing credit was uh, The Curse of Michael Myers. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? I'm a fan, so... <laughs> I'm just saying, when you're six films deep, why not bring in a cult? <laughs> why the fuck not? You gotta do something. At least they just remake the whole thing yeah. again. Or do a podcast about it. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we're professional podcasters, and we're trying to follow the story of Michael Myers. <laughs> I will give you $100 to talk to me about it. <laughs> And then you're going to stiff him. You actually don't. No podcaster has $100. <laughs> you know, I noticed that too when I was doom scrolling Tubi to find something. I saw a film and it was like uh, um, uh, the lead character, blah, 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 a podcaster. And I was like, no, no, just fucking stop. No one wants a podcaster as your main and character. And a podcaster or a YouTuber. As someone who has been a podcaster for two years, I can tell you nobody wants to hear a story about a podcaster. <laughs> Do you know a podcaster? Like, think of the podcasters you might know. Would anyone want to hear, like, to watch a movie about something I do. I mean, and unless it is making fun of them, like, like Dead Streams, kind of yeah. making fun of the whole YouTube thing. That I would watch. <laughs> but a serious horror film, no. Get no. the fuck out of here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I did, yeah, start to do a quick Google search to find out because I did know this was based on a true story. <laughs> How far did you make it? Oh. Dude, I didn't. I, I've, I've read about the case before, but it was years ago. 
And I started rereading it again for this, and I just I stopped. Well, it did lead just, me to a, a subsection of the internet that I despised and I didn't know existed. I I don't follow true crime. I don't mm. like true crime. I do, but I'm not like a diehard. Like I'll I'll sit for a while and watch a bunch of true crime docs or listen to some podcasts, yeah. and then it depends what it is. I take a break for a while because it is it's harrowing, really. If you if you have a heart at all, it's harrowing to learn these stories, and they're all true. And well, you know. and I and I think part of the problem is what I brought up earlier is that the humanity is gone from those. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, a good true a good true crime thing or a story or like a good true crime writer that's what they should do. Right, it pulls at you. You should bring the humanity into it, but that's hard. Mm-hmm. It's that's hard, a, and a lot of people don't want that. Because I'm sorry, but a lot of true crime is titillating for some people. And that, I, that's why a lot of them listen to and it. And so what bothered me is that when I came, like when I was searching the case, you come across a lot of websites that's like famous murderous women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of that, um, so this true case, uh, <laughs> Sylvia Marie Lickens, uh, was in 1965 when this happened. So we have a, American Crime, the film that's like a dramatization of the case. Also, we need to mention Investigate Discovery, the Discovery-devoted network that's just for true crime. Uh, They have a series called Deadly Women, which is all true crime stories about women that are killers. And they did an episode adapting this case and covering it called Born Bad. See, I fucking hate this. I hate this. And what was the bitch's name? Um, her name is Gertrude Benezwinski. That's it. Yeah, it happened in Indianapolis in the late 60s, right? Um... So the first major difference is the parents didn't die. They uh, they worked in like the carnival that would travel around. They just abandoned the children. And no, they didn't <laughs> abandon them. Um, they had a thing. They they Define needed abandon. They needed to go. And um, Gertrude was like a family friend that they knew. They were neighbors. They were close. And she was like, "Well, you can just give me some money, and I'll watch them while you're gone." Um, which is what they did. Well, according to her, they didn't send that much money. Whether they did or didn't. I mean, I don't oh, know. God, well, that, that was one of the reasons why she beat her so severely. That's when it started. That reminds, when their payments were late. Well, that started. reminds me of something Ruth says that I forgot about until you just said that. What's up? Um, and then having, when Piper and I went through all the foster care classes, like to learn about the foster care system and potentially be foster parents or whatever. And when Ruth says, well, they certainly don't pay me enough. To deal with that, and I was yeah. like, "Oh, um, so fuck. What how a, many times have I heard that?" Uh, we're not gonna go beat by beat because this is a long case to cover, but yeah, you could easily um, look it up. We could do a whole other like hour just going horrifying. through this, but uh, I'll put the link in the show notes where you can go read it all beat to beat. Um, they were gonna send money. The first like payment they sent was late getting there, so she thought they were stiffing her, and so she beat Sylvia and abused her a bunch. Then, like shortly after the first payment came in and she chose to just hide that away and not bring it up ever that she was getting the money. Right. Yeah. And it's not like, it, <laughs> not like if she wasn't getting the payments, it doesn't justify her beating the children. I don't want you to think that, but I mean, that was just, um, so I truncated this many excuses to uh, make it simple. Um, so she was tortured and eventually murdered by her caregiver and her children and several of the neighborhood friends. This abuse incrementally lasted for three months before she died from her extensive injuries and malnourishment on October 26, 1965. Um, she was increasingly neglected, belittled, sexually humiliated, beaten, starved, lacerated, and dehydrated by her tormentors. The autopsy showed 150 wounds across her body, including several burns, scald marks, and eroded skin. Um, through intimidation, her younger sister, who was named Jenny, 
was occasionally forced to participate to some degree in the mistreatment. Uh, the official cause of her death was determined to be a homicide caused by a combination of subdural hematoma and shock, complicated by severe malnutrition. Yeah. So, um, I'll talk a little bit about the end of the case, but right here, just to talk about this part, like, what's different if we go to the girl next door compared to the real case is David. He is like, there was no David in the real thing. There well, was, right. Because Ketchum said that he had to write it from a neighbor's point of view because the, the actual case was so horrible. Yeah, he, he couldn't have someone there all the time. That he didn't want to write it. <laughs> like, and, and there's yeah. actually a chapter of the book, chapter 42. Oh. And at this time, they have, he's described horrible things that they've done to her. Mm-hmm. You know, horrible things. Um, but this chapter is very short and it just says, I'm not going to tell you about this. I refuse to. There are things you know you'll die before telling. Things you know you should have died before ever having seen. I watched and saw. That's the whole chapter. Yeah. Even he, even he couldn't explain what was going on. I got chills over here. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So there is no source of another person who was kind of benign and tried to help in some way at all. That just in the real case does not exist. There is no hope for these poor children. Mm-hmm. Um. There's something about like one. Uh, she had like a daughter, and one of the daughters was kind of kind of trying to help Sylvia, but oh, it, it doesn't. Uh, it's very tenuous. Yeah. Um. So now let's get more mad. Let's talk about the ending of things. So, <laughs> um, they they were, of course arrested, brought in, they were tried. Um, and so it was Gertrude, her oldest daughter Paula, her son John, two neighborhood youths, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs. They were all tried in May of 1966. Um, at the trial, the deputy prosecutor described the case as the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or a jury. Um, and one of the defense attorneys, uh, described it as having, as the victim having been subjected to acts of degradation that you would never commit even on a dog before her death. That's what got me was, um, that her own defense attorney yeah. was like, ah. I'm, he's like, I'm literally just doing this because I have to. Yeah. <laughs> please, please convict her. Please convict her. Yeah, she's trash. She's um, horrible. So after eight hours of deliberation, the jury found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder. Why did it fucking take eight hours? Yeah, yeah. Good question. Well, it could have been what degree they wanted to charge her with. Okay, now steal yourselves. She was sentenced to life imprisonment, but was then released on parole in 1985. Yeah, she served like 20 years. Fucking why? Uh, Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder and was released in 1972. Hobbs, Hubbard, and John were found guilty of manslaughter and served less than two years in an Indiana reformatory before being granted parole in 1968. The the part that got me the worst was that the real-life Ruth character was able to live out a natural life. Yes. Um, she wasn't... like she She didn't die old, old. But she died of natural life yeah, things, yeah. like not. She should have been in prison the rest of her life. In effect, you could say she got away with it. Yeah, to she, a degree. she very much did. I mean, to, for what she did, why does why do you why do you get parole if you're? I don't know. Well, following her parole, she relocated to Iowa. Uh, it's on record that she never accepted full responsibility for the torment and death insisting she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions, uh, blaming it on medication that had been prescribed to her to treat her asthma. 
Uh, she lived in relative obscurity in Laurel, Iowa until her death due to lung cancer in 1990 at the age of 61. Well, at least it was 1990 and she died of lung cancer, so she probably fucking suffered. Yeah. So we can only least, hope. We can only hope. Yeah, if there is a hell, hopefully she's burning it. And what of our other fun cohorts? Well, uh, after her parole in 1972, Paula assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years. What? At the Bowman Conrad Liscom. Okay, it, it, it is possible. <laughs> it is possible that someone could be like, oh my God, I have done something horrible and I need to make amends. I need to try to do some good in this world. That is possible. But sure. in my opinion, someone like that should never even be given the opportunity. Hell no. <laughs> a, no, you're staying behind bars the rest of your life. Fuck you. Right, so if she changed her name, um, she concealed the truth of what was going on and who she was and got the position. Later in 2012, the school discovered who she was and fired her. Uh, but she's married and has two kids. Uh, the baby daughter to whom she gave birth while she was awaiting trial in 1966. And she named after her mother. Wonderful. Um, let's see. I thought you were about to say Sylvia for a minute. And I was like, no. fuck no. Um, <laughs> there was also a charge. I'm going, where she live? Where that girl live? <laughs> and so Gertrude had another daughter. This is the whole, like, someone tried to help, quote unquote. Um, she had a 15-year-old daughter named Stephanie. And the charges were dropped against her because she agreed to turn state's evidence against everyone else. Um, prosecutors tried to resubmit the case against her before a grand jury in 1966. Um, and there was this talk of having a separate trial just for her, but it never happened. Mm-hmm. She assumed a new name and became a school teacher. What the fuck? She later married, had several children, and she was last known to have resided in Florida. I know job options were rather <laughs> limited back there for women, but did she have to be a fucking school teacher? God damn it. Um, when questioned at the trial as for her motive for uh, turning in state's evidence, she stated, I'm just here in the hope I can help anybody. In response to which her mother's attorney, which was the same guy that was like, please... Please convict my <laughs> shoot person. Her. Shoot her in the lobby. He questioned her statement and said, including yourself. Mm. Uh, let's see what else. Um, the younger kids got put into different foster families. Their surnames were changed. Um, they kind of all drifted away to different places. Uh, the neighbors that got involved, uh, Richard, Coy, and John, they all served less than two years, like we said, got parole, got out. Became teachers. All did different things. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer in 1972 at the age of 21. So I guess he lived a hard life, but probably deserved it. Fuck fuck you. I don't care. Um, He apparently was known for having nervous breakdowns after he got released. Too bad. Fuck you. Don't care. Uh, I guess Marty will do that to you. After Coy got out, he remained in Indiana, never tried to change his name. He repeatedly was in prison for various criminal offenses and was on the wrong side of the law continually. And was even charged in 1977 for the murder of two young men. Uh, but due to a mix-up with one of the witnesses, he got acquitted on that and got out. Oh, so he's killed a lot of people. Yep. Um, when the film on American Crime came out, he ended up getting fired from his job when they realized who he was. Oh, jeez. And then he died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana at the age of 56. Uh, and then here's uh, our last one to wrap up, the, uh, the John Fellow. Uh, he lived in rare relative obscurity, changing his name to John Blake, and became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions for the children of divorced parents. Fantastic. 
Dustin, um, you're gonna have to quit before I accidentally <laughs> just punch you by proxy. <laughs> um, sometime after his release and becoming a lay minister, um, he issued a statement with the knowledge that he and his co-defendant should have been sentenced to a more severe term of punishment, but also said that he wanted people to know that young criminals are not beyond rehabilitation. I'm sure he did, and stated that he felt that he had become a productive citizen. Again, that is possible. I, I, I'm, I'm all for people. They get sentenced to, you know, to, to serve whatever time they serve it. And I think they do deserve a second chance. But, I mean, when you're talking about murder and something like this, something <laughs> yeah. this horrid. But can't you just go live and work, like, a simple job where yeah. you're just, like... Move boxes in a warehouse. Yeah, and just... And you don't fucks with anyone. Maybe don't be around young people all the time. <laughs> yeah, just, just yeah. go off and live your life alone and die. Like, well, why were all these people allowed to work with children? Um, he liked the attention of when people learned about the case and he's on record as claiming he only ever hit Sylvia once. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he died in 2005 at the age of 52 due to complications from diabetes. Well, at least most of those people died relatively young. (laughs) And, uh, our last person to wrap up on is Jenny, which is the younger sister. Of course. Um, after dealing with all the trauma of that, she eventually married, um, they had some children. Uh, she was apparently traumatized for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm, naturally. Uh, was dependent on anxiety medication, and she died in 2004 from a heart attack. No. However, there's, this is maybe the only like little coda to this we could have. Uh, she saw, I guess, the announcement of the obituary of Gertrude once she died, and she clipped it and mailed it to her mother with a note, and her note read, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha. I'm happy about that. <laughs> so at least she got to live long enough to see... Yeah, see that happen. See that happen. Jesus. It's fucking terrible. Merry Christmas, everybody! Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> the worst monsters are people. Oh, yeah. The worst horrors are real life. Horror films, people bitch and moan how horrible they are and how they can affect people. And it's like, fuck you, real life is way worse than any <laughs> horror film. And so I think... My props to catch him because, like, if you want to talk about this story, I think he made it in the only way you can make it where it's like you have something to pull you through to the end. Yeah. To not just, like, hate the world. Yeah. And Ketchum was not afraid of looking at dark things, mm-hmm. examining dark things. And I, what I like about this, though, that Ketchum did that doesn't make it a true crime novel is that the point was to get you. Yeah. yeah. The point was to make you see the victim and to make you feel the victim. And the victim is not separated, and the murderers are not borderline worshipped. Yeah, like that's one of my big issues with true crime is that yeah. you almost have murder worship. Like, um, I knew somebody once who said something like, "Who's your favorite serial killer?" And I'm like, "Fuck you." Yeah. Oh, who's your favorite? I love Ted Bundy. Oh. Like, get fucked. They're <laughs> no. They're horrible, horrible, They're horrible human beings. Like, eat. yeah. I don't care if. Charles Manson didn't actually kill anybody, like which is bullshit. You know he fucking did. Yeah, um, yeah, Michael. But who's the baddest? Who's the who's the baddest one? But like, Ketchum <laughs> doesn't do that at yeah. all. No, which I think is what makes this film have a place, and mm-hmm. what makes the book have a place mm-hmm. is that there's no worship of the murderer. No. There's no uh, deadliest women. Yeah. There's none of that bullshit. <laughs> this is Meg's story. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Like this is the story of Meg, and and what happened to her and how she died, 
And basically, is there anything you can take from this and come out on the other side? And the only thing is that David realized, like, people are horrible and I don't want to be that. Right. Yep. It's shit that it took that to happen. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. We haven't talked too much about Ketchum yet. Um, and Ketchum really is more obscure than he needs to be. He should be, like... Up there with Stephen King and stuff. He finally started getting some recognition, you know, in the 2000s. But I mean, he'd been writing since the 80s. Yeah, and he and most of his recognition came because King said, "This guy scares the shit out of me." Yeah, you know, like which, you know, a, a word from King can honestly boost your career huge. Yeah, ask oh, yeah. Clive Barker. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, King uh, had some nice things to say about this movie. He said it was the first authentically shocking American film I've seen since Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer over 20 years ago. Nice. If you're easily disturbed, you should not watch this movie. If, on the other hand, you're prepared for a long look into hell suburban style, the girl next door will not disappoint. This is the dark side of the moon version of Stand By Me. Nice. Yeah. So, very kind words from Mr. King. Very true. Very true. I agree. Um... Yeah, catch him. There have been a few movies based on his works, if you're interested. I wanted to talk about one. Okay. Um, Go for it. The Lost. The Lost is a very good movie. Also based on a true crime of a real serial killer. Uh, Ray Pye, I think, is the character in the mm-hmm. film. I don't know if that's the real life name. Totally weird, like, rockabilly serial killer dude who's like, again, it's almost like a toxic masculinity thing because he yeah. targeted women and he did weird shit like he would put crushed cans in the heels of his shoes to make himself taller. Yeah. Good film. It's got a really weird vibe to it, and then it just goes like off the rails by the end. Yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. I, I quite like it. A lot. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, saying that at a horror convention. I think it was a horror hound convention mm. back in the day when it came out. Nice. I wish that. Uh, sadly, Ketchum passed away a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think he ever got to really see how much people really liked him and Which how influential he was. Um, I met him at a con. When he came to town, and I, I knew he was going to be there, and went specifically for him, mm. and came up to his booth, said hi, and he was just like a super lovely human being, so soft spoken and kind, and said, "I'm really sorry, I I've sold out of books." He said, "Which I'm happy about, but I don't have anything." <laughs> he was like, "I'm really happy I sold them." He's like, "But I don't have anything to sign for you," and I pulled out my um, beaten and battered copy of Red. Mm. And, nice. uh, and, and I was like, but I, I brought one for you to sign. And like the look of shock <laughs> on his face was so sad in a way mm. that he was like, <laughs> he was just so happy that someone, and it was mm. clear that I'd read it and loved it. Yeah. yeah. And well, think about those cons. Like how many people came through and just bought one of his books just cause. Yeah. And it's there. Well, he's, eBay the next he's day an author. I'll just have him sign it. And yeah. Uh, and I, I took some. I think I took Off Season as well. Great, oh, that's a book. great. One. That's one of my favorites. I, yeah, I that it. was his first one. And he signed them for me. And they were mass market paperbacks. You know, ones that I'd read over. Well, good luck they, finding hardcovers. And they, well, <laughs> but they were beaten up. It was clear yeah. that I loved yeah. them and that I'd read them. To me, I that know? means more. Uh, anyways. I'm sure that was. Uh, I bet that meant a lot to him. So friendly, so kind, and just, I mean, great human. It's it's amazing that he's so kind and so lovely to write the stuff that he writes i mean like i think that's often the case too like the most heinous shit but then the person behind it has a lot of empathy and i think it's that empathy is why they can make exactly such a story because they're just pissed off as we are about it but they write about it you know they have to channel that somehow and he also loved cats and he's written 
He wrote this short story. I swear to God, it fucking tore me up. I can't even talk about it because I'll, I'll probably start like sniffling <laughs> if I talk about it. But Red, it's like Red's the same way. Red man. is the same yeah. way. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, but uh, so movies that he wrote or the that were made in the movies, uh, The Lost. He wrote the screenplay. Girl Next Door. We didn't write the screenplay for that. He, his book was the basis. Yeah, uh, Red Offspring, The Woman, and those are all sequels of Off Season. But we haven't gotten the movie based on Off Season yet. Which is annoying. I feel like that's low hanging fruit for a for a film. Well, they Shutter just released one called Off Season that I got really excited about because I <laughs> thought it was Ketchum, and then it wasn't at all. It'd be a great gore fest though, because that that oh, book yeah. that book was censored. They cut out chunks of that book the, the first time they printed it. Um. Oh, he also had a small part in the Girl Next Door movie. <laughs> no oh, yeah, pun intended. He was uh, the what the ticket taker yeah, at ticket the carnival. carnival. Yeah. They cut out chunks. <laughs> chunks. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. So big takeaway from this, too, is if you've never read any of his stuff, you should go go seek one out. Give him a read. Mm-hmm. Um, he's painfully underrated, I think, as far he as is. like horror authors and stuff. And I, su- I suggest this book. I suggest off-season. They're heavier um, reads. Oh, yeah. They're not, uh, they're not Stephen King reads. Mm-hmm. These are heavier reads. Yeah. Um, and I like that because it's almost like King acknowledges it, too. It's like he does something that I can't. Yeah, yeah. But that was, I mean, that's kind of why, like, the only way that you can really watch The Girl Next Door, and I think if you listen to this, like, if you watch it before you listen to the podcast, I'm sorry, because <laughs> you're going to really, it's rough. But if you watch it afterwards, know that, like, I guess what I hope people take away from it is don't, is, is don't forget the humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, don't forget the victim of these things like right. i don't know i get i've said it many times i'm just tired of the <laughs> tired of the murder worship like no, i agree i agree these are real people that really died and suffered and they need to be remembered in some way mm-hmm. you know i think we it's easy to like we we look at our horror film killers um like you know our slasher our our michael myers our jasons our mm-hmm. leatherface and all that stuff and you can put those up on a pedestal and like well, we, it's fake. Yeah, exactly. It's fake. We, <laughs> it's so outrageous. It's not. They do know. horrible things to people, but it's fake. It's a hundred percent fake. And even then, the stuff that's sourced, like everyone's like, "Oh yeah, Leatherface is based on Ed Gein." And it's like, "Well, yeah, he is, I guess, vaguely, but like so yeah. vaguely." But it's when you start worshiping those people, right, and making them like almost these super villains or superheroes, however yeah. you want to look at it. It's not a perfect movie, but Natural Born Killers does a good job of setting that up. You know, yeah, of sending I, I it agree. Up. Yeah, lampooning it. So, I, yeah. I think this is one of the few films, honestly, in the same vein, that does this well. Mm-hmm. That really reminds you of the victim. And makes sure that you remember that the who the villains truly are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging film, but also I think it's a rewarding film. Okay. Agreed. Well, I guess we should probably move to our... Yep. All right, thoughts um, of the film. I really okay. don't even feel right doing like a <laughs> like a star rating. I, I will. Mean, it is still a movie. Yeah, it's still constructed, a movie. written, edited, directed. Talk about it like a movie. Yeah, we hit all my notes. I didn't have anything else. Cool. I, I, will, I will say one quick thing, though. Also, if you like Jack Ketchum books, if, you, if you're interested in stories like this, also go read uh, Let's Go Play at the Adams by Mendel W. Johnson. It was written in the late 70s. And it is eerily similar to this. And I don't know if the author had known about the Likens case mm-hmm. or not. 
if this is only novel. He died shortly after writing this. So I couldn't find any research. So on maybe that. he was like kind of inspired. Yeah, maybe he knew too much. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about these this this young girl's babysitting these kids and she wakes up tied up one morning and they mm. proceed to play a game with her. So it's very much along the same lines. People are horrible, man. I hate humans. <laughs> yeah, true. That's why I like my animals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't even like any of y'all listening to this. <laughs> oh, wow, that's harsh. Man, I hate you all. I hate everyone. I hate you, Dustin. And oh, you, Jason. He likes oh, your no. animals. Yeah, but you got animals? Let me see pics. <laughs> Send us cat pics. <laughs> and your dogs. Puppies. Uh, I guess I can go first. Sure. Do it. Uh, as far as a film, like, as far as a story goes, it's like a five-star story, but as far as a film goes, I do think I can... I, I can't give it a five mm-hmm. um, just because I don't think it's perfect film. Um, it's fair. Maybe things could be done differently, but honestly, I can't sit and tell you what I think could be done differently. If that makes sense. Like it, it, yeah. there's just something about this movie that keeps it from being like, Oh, I would recommend this so highly. So I, <laughs> that's probably also the subject matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't really. So I, I would solidly sit on a four with this one. Yeah. Like cool. I think I, I'm very happy to have watched it. Well, that's a weird way to say that, but I'm glad to have watched it. I think it's an an important movie. I think it's worth watching. I think it's well done. It's well crafted. Um, it's smart by knowing what not to show. It's respe- yeah. It's respectful by yeah. knowing what not to show, which automatically should gain it a star. You know, for just reading <laughs> that, that, the room. That sounds like backhanded praise, but it's actually very smart on part of the filmmakers. Yeah, and and I and I don't mean it as backhanded praise. I mean it as like, oh yeah, if you had shown some of the stuff that was actually done, I would have told you to go fuck yourself. Yeah, like you have no business making a movie. Restraint can be very important. So, especially with the fact that it is a true case, kind of hanging in the background. Yeah, Uh, like we. I'm sorry, I can't remember who directed it. Uh, Gregory Wilson. I don't know if we brought that up. No, I was going to mention that because he hasn't. Done much else. He did a movie called Home Invaders before this in 2001. Home Invaders! And then only one, one movie called Ghoul that was a TV movie in 2012. But I mean, if you're only going to make kind of really one big film to your name. There you go. Hey, here yeah. You go. Well, props to him, man. <laughs> like, he knew what he was doing. I think it was shot well, you know? Like, it, it there are times I feel like it feels like a TV movie. I was going to talk about that, yeah. Um, which is <laughs> probably another reason that it holds me back on a full five, but I mean, four is a solid rating for it. And I, oh, yeah. I yeah, would, four's a good rating. I would definitely think that if you can handle this film, watch it. But if it at all hits anything in your life that might be, it will trigger you. Yeah. Don't. Yeah, it's don't. like we said on all the extreme horror episodes, like know your limits, know what you're cool with, know mm-hmm. what kind of gets under your skin too much. Don't push yourself on this one. If you want to watch it and you think you can watch it because mm-hmm. it's it's good and if it doesn't piss you off you might want to talk to somebody yeah yeah <laughs> but i don't know there's a lot of people who've suffered a lot of abuse and trauma in their life and i would not i i would be like if if that's oh, you yeah. steer well, the like take as far a fucking away as you can <laughs> from this movie don't watch it because it's just not going to be good for you and mentally. if you are going to the film after listening to us it's okay to be angry it's okay to. It's that's okay a to good be reaction. That's a healthy reaction about the film. It's okay to be angry with yourself if it makes you think about things in your life. Yes, that's called it's introspection. Good. It's good. It's a good thing to have. That's yeah. what good movies should do. It should make you introspect and think about things. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Michael? No, I'm okay. I'll, I'll go next. 
Um, I'm right there with you. I think it's a really well-made film. I think, again, this is like the only way to approach this story in like a meaningful way, the way that he adapted it and then they filmed it. Um, I do think there are some kind of flaws there if we're just talking like cinematic as a movie. Um, you're right, Michael. There is at times this kind of almost made-for-TV movie vibe, especially you notice it, I think, in the adult David scenes. Those feel really... Uh-huh. Really weird, a little cheap, a little like very like framed camera angles that are uninteresting, and some of the dialogue is like a little stilted, almost like second unit shot it. Yeah, a little bit. Like they made the movie, then they made those wraparounds to kind of fit in there. Um, but that's like the worst thing I could bring up to say about this movie. Like mm-hmm. everything else, it just hits and it all works so well and it all blends perfectly. Um, I think it's an terribly inf- it's a terribly infuriating film to watch, but because there's so much emotion and heart in it that if you just have even the tiniest shred of compassion, it's going to get in there and like resonate with you and hit. Um, again, I, if you look out there at like other reviews and what's out there, you're going to see a lot of like, well, I hate this movie. He didn't do anything. Why, why do you do, why didn't he do anything? And I think that sells so short, like the point of the movie. And it, it's easy to sit, sit on your couch and watch this and be like, well, that's fucked up. Why didn't he help her mm-hmm. more? Uh, it's another thing to be that person in that moment with everything going on and to experience that and to then, like, what do you do? Um, and I think that's one of the things the film wants you to think about. Like, would you be like David? Could you be like David? Would how what would you do different? What could you try to do different? Um, and the the kid that plays David, I don't know if we mentioned that, uh, Daniel Mensch. Yeah, he's very good. He is so good in this film and, like, there's a lot that he tells and shows just through his acting and his facial expressions that mm-hmm. aren't like, it could have been adult David narrating how he felt, but they just show you and make you feel it with him. Right. Which is always better than a narration. Um, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a strong film. It's a powerful film. It really sticks with me. I've only watched it twice in my life. The first time I saw it probably a few years after it came out. And then now for this podcast, and it's not one I don't think, you know, every year or two I'll go, hey, you know what I need to do is go watch The Girl Next Door. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't hate my life enough. But I do think it's a great film. It's an impactful film. It's not one you need to see all the time. But it, it's if you can handle it and you're good to go through it, it's it's a worthwhile experience. Right. And I would sit solidly at a four. All right. Nice. I also fall at a four. Yeah. I think everything you guys said is spot on, especially your observation, Michael, about the restraint. Um. Is it? I mean, it's not. It, I would say this movie is very classically shot. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not flashy. It's not trying to be cool or different. It's almost documentarian in that. You know, it's a good, good tag to put approach. on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, again, I agree with everything you guys said. It's it's a tough watch. It's a hard watch, but it's a really good movie, and it's got good actors, and they're going to places that you don't really want to go, and I always respect that. You know, it's not exploitive. It's about those horrible things yeah, that, you know, humans <laughs> do sometimes. And we can't turn our backs on that. You know, we, we can't right. just ignore it. Sometimes you have to just face that shit. And step up and punch somebody in the face. Get mad about it and punch somebody. <laughs> and then beat them to death with a crutch. <laughs> After setting the basement on fire. And the book, um, she's actually... They come in, and he doesn't beat her with a crutch, but the cops come in, and they've got her. And they're, like, trying to hurt everybody up the steps out of the basement and stuff. And she says something. I forget what it was, but some horrible, smart-ass thing. And David just turns around and pushes her down the steps. <laughs> and, right, the cop sees it, right? And then he's just like, mm, yeah, he's I like, didn't see anything. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, four stars. Check it out if you can, if it's the sort of thing that appeals to you. And if not, hey, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And again, thank you, Elena, for pitching this one. I think uh, more than anything, it's been a great discussion to sit here and talk about this and mm-hmm. especially vent my frustrations I've had for the past two days <laughs> since I rewatched it. Seriously. And it's on Tubi. So, you know, you get the fun thing of like, right as they're about to torture, ads start in five, <laughs> <You know what? laughs> I'm usually critical of the commercials, but I kind of appreciated them here. I know. Yeah. In this one, I'm like, oh, thank God. It's the sort of thing you want to breathe on. I would yeah. see the countdown in the corner. I would be like, oh, thank you, God. Please <laughs> show me about a car, please. Yes. Sell me something. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, we've got one more episode planned for you for the year. Yep, we're going to do our bonus-y, like, end-of-year wrap-up thing again. We're going to do casual chat, little admin, talk about the show, what's been going on, what was cool, what maybe didn't work so much, what didn't pan out, mm-hmm. all that usual fun stuff. I have lots of cool stats to go over, and we're going to share our favorite film discoveries of the year. And to recap that from last time, that's anything that we've watched for the first time this year. So it could be new films, but it could be old stuff that we only discovered now. Yeah. Well, normally it would be uh, my pick mm-hmm. for the next block, but sadly I will, this will, this one. And then I guess the, I'm going to, you're going to join us for the, for the last year, up the year but that will be my time coming to a conclusion for genre exposure. My heart. And we are most sad about this. We're deeply saddened. Too much going on in my mm. actual human life. <laughs> That uh, not that I don't have time for it, um, but uh, yeah, priorities. I mean, you know, yeah. you can't fit everything in, man. Yeah, we it, understand. It we, gets, we are sad that you have to step away, but we mm-hmm. understand. Yeah, um, but the two donkeys here will definitely keep pulling this <laughs> cart. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try as best we can. And nothing says you can't come back for a guest spot at some this point. Is oh, yeah. This is That's true. This is true. I may, I may be around at some point. I mean, I'm always going to be around and. Um, probably oh, yeah. trolling. We'll, the, we'll share as many embarrassing Michael stories as we can. I'll probably be trolling the Facebook page you know, <laughs> as much as possible because now I don't have to do anything with it. <laughs> and I, too, if you ever want to just like type up a movie review, you can always pitch. This yeah, is true. Exactly. This is true. So no, it has been fun. Uh, I realized we'd done like sixty episodes or something near near there. Yeah, uh, two years, a, man. Which is a lot. Two years, and we've done an episode every other week continuously, no breaks, and, no misses. Uh, now my child throws tantrums, so you know, yeah, it's a whole new, <laughs> whole new world that I live in. Yeah, that's um, that's a big, uh, big task. So uh, I guess what is your all's next? What what picked can they watch next? So we need some time to, of course, deal with this big change. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge loss. No one can fill your shoes, flat out, or right. my drawers. <laughs> um, so we need a little time to do some prep behind the scenes and get stuff together and figure out what we're doing. So we decided for January, it's going to be freestyle month. Yeah. All right. There's no actual theme. We're just going to do, um, we're replacing your normal slot, Michael, with a listener episode. Jason and me are just going to pick any two random films that we just really want to talk about that we've not had a topic that could mesh it in with. So you're getting two listener episodes and then two picks from us. It'll be just the two of us, like we did for Extreme Horror. Mm-hmm. Casual freestyle to start the new year. Yeah, kind of fill things out, see how they go. But Jason, you're up first on this. Oh, God, I am. Uh-oh, do you not have your movie? I do. Okay, good. I do. I actually... Um, <laughs> it's called acting, Dustin. Oh, you, you, you've you got, got it, too. You've got it, too. Oh. Uh, we're going to watch Miracle Mile. Oh, so this makes my Christmas gift all the more meaningful. Yep. Okay. It, it is from 1988, I believe is the year. Interesting. It, uh, it's actually 89 says the 1989 
Well, this is 88 here, so it probably got released. Well, who's, who's right and who's wrong? Well, you're going to take that up with Kino Lorber. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one I remember seeing back in the day. It was one of those kind of sleeper movies. I don't even remember it playing in theaters. It just kind of popped up on VHS. I've, like so uh, many movies did back in the 80s. I never heard of it at all, but I'm intrigued. Okay. We'll see what you think. Um, you want to give them the blurb on the back a little bit? Oh, or? sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would you do if you knew you only had an hour to live? This intense, eerily euphoric romantic thriller stars Anthony Edwards and Mare Winningham in a frighteningly plausible story that yanks you by the label. This is not really a synopsis so much as it's like ad copy about the... I'll give you a better one. I'll give you a A young man hears a chance phone call telling him that a nuclear war has started and missiles will hit his city in 70 minutes. Oh. Is that the length of the movie? It's a little bit longer than that. It's like 90. (laughs) (laughs) But also that doesn't happen until like the second act. Oh, okay. So it is almost real time. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I hope you like it. It's been, honestly, I haven't seen it in a long <laughs> time. Jason watches it like, whoops. <laughs> oh. Michael, you're not going to be there, but you already know where this is going. It, it lets an impression on me, and I'll discuss that when we watch it. Okay. All look, right. look forward for that coming soon. Uh, join us up at the end of the year for our final farewell with Michael. We wrap things up for 2022. I'll be uh, doing the next podcast completely naked. Oh, okay. Cool. So, Goodness. Uh, <clears throat> treat for us. Yeah, just uh, know what you'll be missing. <laughs> um, as always, it's been super fun. Uh, I don't know if it's fun talking about this movie. I'm going to take that back. It's been a meaningful experience. It's been a meaningful experience talking about cathartic. this movie. <laughs> um, but if uh, these guys are going to definitely need a lot of recommendations from yes. you. Uh, as far as films go to watch. So if if you've been a listener and you've just never thought to write in or maybe something, or maybe you thought that like it wouldn't fit a block or whatever, don't worry about that. Just do it. Uh, Just (laughs) Just do it. um, I mean, I'm just saying, hey, you there, hey, you listener right now, you sitting there thinking, I I could never suggest a film. (laughs) 2023 is your year. And uh, thanks for joining us on this fall pledge drive. Uh, uh, but no, and like all cheesiness and corniness aside, this is an opportunity for if you really want to like jump in and, and fill my seat. Or if you just want to torture us with something horrible, you yeah. know, lay it on us. We I, can take it. Give these guys some films to watch. Um, I mean, I'm probably still going to watch these movies too, unless they're ones that I read and I'm like, fuck that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, oh, another weird Japanese movie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> guess I won't be watching that one. <laughs> These Japanese guys are rapping. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'll pass. <laughs> um, Been there, done that. But no, seriously, shoot uh, recommendations. It really doesn't matter uh, what no. kind of film it is. I, I, I'm a little worried that maybe people aren't sending recommendations because they think it needs to be horror. It doesn't have to be. It's any um, genre, man. We've yeah. done everything. We watch everything. Yeah. I mean, I would prefer no romantic comedies, but <sighs> even I then, mean, I'm we'll sure it. there are exceptions. Fish Called Wanda is kind of a romantic comedy. Well, it's a lot more than that, but yeah. <laughs> okay, if it's as good as A Fish Called Wanda, <laughs> lay it on me. <laughs> Please. Um, but also continue to, if Twitter's still here, um, oh, God. you can tweet or whatever. Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, um, if Twitter dies and there's some acceptable follow-up, we'll, we'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and uh, watch out for our NFT collection announcement. <laughs> Jason's got a, a yeah, NFT superhero gonna, card. We're going to have a limited run of Michael NFTs. Yeah, $99. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a bargain. <laughs> that's a bargain. And it's yours. <laughs> All right, guys. 
Well, I will certainly miss uh, chatting with everyone and uh, doing this outro. We love you, man. So you're going to have to figure out the outro. <laughs> Fuck that. I'll have to start practicing. <laughs> just, we'll bye. just recycle yours. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, bye. <laughs> We're going to clip the best time you've ever done an outro and just use that every time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll just insert in different movie titles and stuff as need be. <laughs> All right. Well, since the next episode won't be coming out until after Christmas, I hope you guys have a absolutely Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. I don't give a shit what you celebrate or what you don't celebrate. Um, just have a good time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if, be good to each other. Yeah. Be kind. If we learned anything from this movie, it's be kind. Please, Please. be kind. Please. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, until next time, you have been listening to Genre Exposure. Bye, everyone. Take care. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening